Hey folks, thanks for joining me for this episode of the Embellish Podcast, a podcast focused on product stories, product storytellers, interesting brand ambassadors, and anybody else that I happen to come up with. Whether you're a bourbon fan, a geek, a casual observer, or someone just floating through this channel, I hope you find what we have to say interesting. If you got here by chance, please take a moment to hit the subscribe button. Hopefully I can be found on any podcasting platform that exists. And if you can't find me on a platform, send me an email at embellishpod at gmail.com, and I'll try to get that taken care of. I also generally live stream the recording of these episodes on YouTube on Wednesday nights around 9.30. And you can find all of my links on Instagram at EmbellishPod or Twitter with the same handle. I have a website. It is www.embellishpod.com. It's also a place to pick up these links, episode details, and more. Uh, today is Wednesday, August the 17th, and we are talking with David from the Whiskey Ring podcast. Um, David and I have been circling each other for a long time, apparently. Um, and I'm finding it more <laughs> more relevant as we talk about things. Um, you started about the same time that I started doing this, um, and you're just significantly more professional, so kudos to you. But we have a lot of the same guests. We have a lot of the same things, and so I thought, hey, we need to have a Thunderdome and see who comes out the other end of this alive. So give a quick introduction, you know, who you are, how you got into this, you know, the whole shebang. Sure. So, you know, John, before we, you know, get into each other, uh Thanks. And I mean that exactly how I said it. Uh, thanks for having me on. Really appreciate it. Uh, it said, my name's David. I run the Whiskey Ring podcast, uh, have on, you know, brands, writers, uh, as John said, a lot of people are seen to be crossing over recently. Um, I also run a review and tasting notes website, whiskeyinmyweddingring.com, uh, cause I have whiskey in my wedding ring. And, uh, what else? And, uh, you know, you can reach me on any podcast platform either whiskey ring podcast or whiskey my wedding ring and uh lastly you know support uh at uh, patreon.com slash whiskey my wedding ring i'd love to have you in the group now i i patreon you and i did that before we actually really even uh interacted significantly um sort of the way i began and i'll loop back to a question eventually but the way i began is i was listening to a bunch of different podcasts and i was like you know here's something that I want to do. You know, I want, I want to kind of find my place in this. And so I listened to people that I thought were good. And I started with things like whiskey lore and things like, um, this is my bourbon podcast and dad's drinking bourbon and kind of found my way through the people that, um, I felt like listening to on a regular basis. Cause there's a ton of whiskey content that exists out there. Um, but when you started doing yours, I was immediately like, well, maybe I sh shouldn't have done this. <laughs> this guy's, this guy's way too professional. Um, so I'm trying to weave a, like an improfessional location between what you're doing and what um, Drew at Whiskey Lord does, because he's got the really good storytelling portion of it. And you've got the like really well-informed science narrative slash good tasting palette. And I don't have any of those things. So I, I'm just like, can I have an interesting conversation with the person? Can I find out who they are? And so that's, that was sort of my MO. But when we started, there's, I already said like a ton of voices in whis whiskey podcasting, whiskey tube, wherever. Um, what put you in the position where you wanted to be like, I want to add my voice to this echo chamber. You know, it, it's a, it's a really good question. And it's something I didn't really consider too much, honestly, before I got in, like I, I was uh, also listening to, I was in a couple podcasts. Like I listened to bourbon pursuit. Of course um, I was following it's bourbon night, watch their show. Mm -hmm. shows i should say um i was listening to timbit before starting and um really it started because i started the website and, and i was reading i was reviewing stuff i was putting out notes and i was like you know 
I hear, let's say Kenny, Ryan and Fred talking to someone and I'm like, mm-hmm. these are great questions, but I like, I have more questions that I want to ask them. And so I ended up just reaching out to a couple of people and saying, you know, Hey, you want to just have a conversation? We'll record it. Maybe it's a podcast. Maybe it's just a conversation for us, but we'll see how, how it goes uh, going forward. And in terms of kind of past that, I, I just started having more fun with it. I think like there was a certain point, maybe in episode five or six where I stopped being overly self-conscious because that's a real weakness of mine. I'm always self-conscious about shit like that. And so I was just like, you know what? All right. I'm going to run it. Like it's my podcast. I'm going to have these conversations. And that's when I started doing the more scientific stuff, getting more into the weeds and asking those questions that, um, you know, maybe it won't be as appealing to, a, a wider audience, but mm-hmm. for those bourbon nerds or whiskey nerds like us, uh, it, it'll be, it's perfect. It's, yeah. Yeah. It's the stuff that we really want to get into. Like, I want to know what still type you have, what the diameter is, what green you're using, where it's from. Um, everything else is just gravy on top of that. One of the things that I laugh at every week is, you know, I listen to distillers talk as soon as an episode comes out. Thoroughly enjoy that. And they're, you know, Alan is always talking about like the people that are listening to this are home distillers or craft distillers. And every time this isn't a chuckle, cause I'm like, I'm neither of those, but I'm here every week, Alan. <laughs> you got a little more of an audience to that. Um, but I, you know, the things that, that, that bourbon pursuit does and that Fred does do does whatever. Um, they they acknowledge that if you talk for more than about 25 minutes on an interview, you lose people. That's radio. That's TV. That's everything. Um, you lose large quantities of people. You only keep the people that are you know severely interested in um, what it is we're talking about, which is you know this this point five percent of the whiskey population are like, yay, this is it. Then um, that can put you in a position where you're intentionally targeting a small audience. How are you measuring your success? Like, what, what do you? How do you see success in this? For me, I see success as am I I want to grow. So I want to see some kind of growth. Uh doesn't have to be huge, but you know, I want at a certain point I want it to reach like twenty downloads an episode and then thirty and then forty and then fifty. And um and then with that, parallel was just people uh looking at the website, checking out my reviews. Uh, reposting, retweeting, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted it to be really fun. I was okay with being in the niche, uh, rather than the mainstream. And, uh, I think as long as I keep growing. Oh, and then at a certain point, I, I did want to get like samples and stuff. I wanted to bring on bigger guests and mm-hmm. try things because I'm, I'm still that little kid who wants to try everything. Um, or sorry, I guess we're in whiskey. So the 21 plus year old who wants to try everything and, uh, so yeah, I just wanted to get in front of people, be very honest that I'm not getting a hundred thousand downloads an episode, but <laughs> that, um, you know, hopefully I've got a good enough palate to make sensible tasting notes and, uh, get some good information in there. So that's kind of been my mantra. It, this is never going to be, I don't think my full-time job <laughs> and we know yeah, people for whom it's become a full-time job and, and really a passion and good for them. Mm-hmm. Gr- good for them. But I know for me, this is very much a hobby, something I enjoy. I can cover the bills and that's all I really need. I, I, I get scared of the idea of it being 
a job because I have a job. I have a job and I do relatively well at that. Um, this is fun for me and this becomes part of my own individual cathart, my therapy, whatever you want to call it. Um, mm-hmm. and turning it into a job it just kind of flips that on its ear. But, um, you know, you, you don't get a hundred thousand, but maybe you get 99,999 downloads. <laughs> um, we, we've got Scott in the chat over here. So I don't, I, you can, you may be able to see it, I think, in the comments tab. I'm not sure what your oh, view yes. looks like because I've never done it before, but it's actually yeah. streaming in what's coming from YouTube. And so that's, I don't, I don't know if you've used StreamYard before. Um, it works relatively oh, yeah. well. Oh yeah. I use it on, um, I don't, I don't use it for my own stuff, but I use, um, I was on it with Clifton last week. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. yeah so he, yeah. I forgot he uses it as well. Um, and then now we've got Bill. So Bill's going to ask <laughs> probably what's going on. Um, so for everybody who's watching, uh, Bill and Scott, Myself and, and David are all a part of a group thread with a bunch of other whiskey nerds and it's just general debauchery on a regular basis. And sometimes some interesting oh, yeah. things, like sometimes you talk about uh, labor problems in North America and uh, sometimes you have a fight over uh, pizza. You know, like it could be anything. So, um, that, that latter one is like at least two, three times a week too. <laughs> like, right. If yeah. It's not, I mean, if it's not pizza, it's, like right now, I think it's the, what, what kind of fried chicken is right or, you know, <laughs> that list is flawed. That list is inherently flawed. You cannot have a like top 10 chicken list and have Mc, chicken McNuggets anywhere on the list. I will crush a 20 piece of chicken nuggets. No problem. But it doesn't belong on a top list of anything other than top lists of food that make me feel shame for myself. And see, before, did you see what I responded with that? Oh, no, oh, I so, haven't looked at it yet. No, no, no. Okay. So, so basically, I, I basically agree with you. I said, like, mm-hmm. it's, you can't just put like a chicken joint against a chicken joint. You've got to be like top 10 nuggets, top 10. Pieces, boneless top wings, ten, top ten boneless wings. wings. They did yeah. a little bit of work to try to subdivide it out, but it wasn't granular enough for right. the 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 room of people that are a part of this conversation. In our yeah, chat. exactly. Like, the the people that are there, we we this needs to be a real battle. Like it has to be a real battle, and this is not fair. Oh, yeah. It's you know, it's it's just not. No, no. no. absolutely. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's so, the, the pizza debate is a, it's a regular thing. Yeah, it it is. <laughs> Um, so when you began, like, you know, cause this is, this is where I'm looking at for this conversation specifically, and it'll go wherever it goes. But the, my, my problem was I wanted to start a, a whiskey podcast probably six to nine months before I actually did. And it was like, you know, starting with the identity crisis of like, who says I have a voice? Why should I do anything? Why should I be a part of this? Um, and then it slowly progressed into like, you listen to some people like, well, if that person is willing to put their voice out there, I have no problem being a part of this conversation. But I wanted to do it like nine months before, and there's always more room at the table. You know, like uh, we're in the middle of a whiskey boom. The whiskey boom is going to continue for a while, um, and I'm specifically avoiding the word bourbon boom. We're in a whiskey boom because right now it's bourbon, but it could be American single malt next, which I think both you and I are hopeful for, uh, or any other number of things that could be it. There's more room. You know, there's a rising tide. It will raise all ships if you're mm-hmm. interested in doing this. And so part of it is if somebody comes across and is like, ah, I'm thinking about doing this thing. Come on. I mean, don't try to be more successful than either one of us because that um, is a very low bar to try to go after because you've got a really incredible niche. And I think you do something in a different way than, than I try to do. Um, you have very specific and, and sometimes very scientific conversations with people where if you show up at an event and you interviewed somebody, they're probably going to remember you because of the conversation you had. 
And I'm trying to go the other route. Like, can I have a personal conversation with them where they're going to remember instead of the same 15 questions that every podcaster YouTube channel ever asks, you know, what are you going to release? Why are you making whiskey? Like those base level questions, which are interesting, but how, how do you go about building out an episode? Like how much research are you doing before you actually have an interview with a person? I would say I'm probably doing um, at least a few hours of research uh, on it. I'm doing, depending on how big the brand is and and who I'm talking to, <clears throat> sometimes it'll be on other podcasts. Like I try to listen to, it, if possible, to at least three or four podcasts or or shows or something that they've been on. Um, part of it that I've realized that I wasn't intending to do, but I've started to do, is is to hear their cadence mm-hmm. and like how they answer questions when they stop answering your question uh so i know where to push them a little farther but um more than anything else it's it's what you said it's it's trying not to ask the same questions that everybody asks mm-hmm. um i i do include the basics just in case i'm the first show you know like um uh, an upcoming guest is ironclad distillery from uh from virginia they haven't been on a lot of podcasts mm-hmm. Uh, they're they're fairly small they're growing and i think they've got a lot of promise but um they're they're just not on a lot of podcasts or shows yet so uh in that case it was more about reading on their website getting as much information as i could finding like what's what's not on the website what is on the website because you and i both know some companies are incredibly transparent and some are just opaque as hell right and uh even when they're fully transparent there are still questions to be asked and like if someone has a has a picture or video of their still set up on their site there's still questions to be asked about like how did you come up with that design which designer did you go with you know was mm-hmm. it vendome christian carl missouri like you know what did you what did you use uh and and why ultimately and i'm particularly interested in exploring the why question how people think and what experimentation went into things mm-hmm. um so and and thinking about these episodes in that kind of vein was really a turning point for me because my first couple episodes were more i just did a very cursory look and i went in and um i'd have the website up while i was talking to them and then would kind of pull questions from there uh there was a point where i interviewed um i usually look at bernie lovers mm-hmm as the interview that was really the main turning point because like he has been on every show multiple times. Yes. And not and, every like, show. I love okay. Almost every show. We'll we'll get him on you. <laughs> I am I am I haven't, I haven't tried. I, that, so th- to be fair, I, that's not one that I've sought yet. I'm sure he will say yes and I'm having drinks with him on Tuesday, so I'll mm-hmm. put in a good word. So um he's been on most shows at least once and and that, and that was part that was part of the reason why i haven't is that you know at some point he's got to get tired of saying the same things over and over again and i i know he didn't on your episode because i've listened to all of your episodes with the exception of the last one you just released um and honestly that thumbnail that you put on the last episode top notch i like that um that that, that one's all his that's um that's raj's work i can't t- claim credit for it um it's great just making it the background was as far as i went with the graphic design but um <laughs> Uh, he's he Raj is a fantastic guy mm-hmm. um great storyteller as well and uh so with with Bernie um yeah I, I had to come up with new questions I was still committed to that idea 
And I was like, I must have listened to 12, at least a dozen, maybe up to 15 things that he's been on. And um, it was really fucking hard to figure, to figure out some new questions to ask him. <laughs> um, yep. And I ultimately just had to dig really deep. And I went into um, yeah, like the really limited release lines, like the Parker's Heritage, the Heaven Hill Select Stock, uh, the William Heaven Hill, asking him... Um, I think the first person was asked him, which, which was like, if you could rewrite the bottle to bond act, what would you change? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that took him aback cause he definitely had to, I saw him like looking at his arm, like, well, okay, what's in there again? Like, you know, <laughs> um, but that, that's really the thing is just, I want to come up with a list of, you know, a good list of questions, a loose outline from that research. That's going to, uh, really explore something that maybe the distillery hasn't talked about or the person has talked about and uh, just build the conversation from there. And that's, that's really been, you know, the most, the most fun to do so. And in doing so, I've come across all these other podcasts and, and shows that I'll be honest, I didn't listen to, or I didn't even know about, like you said, there are so many of us out there sometimes that yeah. you, you can't listen to everything. You can't watch everything. No. And it, and it's not, I don't think it's fruitful to you find what fits you. If you listen to a couple episodes, you know, I try to give, I have a rule of three in just about everything that I do, whether it's whiskey, mm-hmm. it's food, it's, you know, music, whatever. Um, I need to experience it three times at three completely different moments in my life. You know, like mm-hmm. if I'm drinking whiskey, it doesn't need to be always right after I've eaten, you know, Mexican food or Japanese food or whatever, because it, it's going to have an impact. Right. Sure. And so I do the same thing with podcasts, but if you like, that's a job. Like that is a job for a human being to sit down and try to listen to every whiskey podcast that's out there. And it's, it ends up, you see different flavors of the exact same thing over and over again. And um, then you get into a position where this is the other part, you know, like, I don't know. Do you ever watch South Park much at all? I do. I'm more a family guy guy. I must admit, okay. but I do watch South Park sometimes. So if you go far enough back in the tomes and you may not be old enough for this specific one, but there was an episode where they did it was a Simpsons did it, right? So the entire episode was anything that happened in South Park. There was one character that would be like, Simpsons did it because the Simpsons have been around for so long. They've already done sure. most of the plot lines. If you listen to all the podcasts, you put yourself in a position of like, Oh, am I, am I rehashing what so and so did or what this other person did? Because you've mm-hmm. heard it, you know, is it influencing how you go? And so it's good to, to listen to what other people are doing, but. It's got to be people that you find interesting. Don't listen to it because you're trying to make sure you're being unique or whatever. Absolutely. And just throw in, that's the flip side also of doing the research is that you, I try not to listen to too many things because then, yeah, you start taking on other people's cadences. Mm -hmm. You start thinking of questions and you forget that that question was asked by someone else. And then you're like, oh, I have this brand new idea, but it's, it has been asked before. And you realize it as you're saying it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's when I'm, I usually catch myself and I change the question midstream. <laughs> so yeah. I'm like, Oh, and I know the answer to this. I think mine is, is I usually try to f- like, I'll hear a question asked and I'm like, man, I wish they would have dug deeper on this one thing. And so now mm-hmm. I've get, you know, like that listening sometimes gives you a place to kind of shove in. Um, the cadence thing is really interesting that you're listening to how people interact. So you don't step on people's words or whatever. And like, I can't do that because everything I listen to is, is one and a half times speed forever. <laughs> Yeah, that's, and yeah. <laughs> I'm, I made this, this horrible, horrible mistake of 
not going back and listening to a podcast in normal time before I joined one. I, there's a, the chill filtered is a, is a uh, whiskey podcast that I follow friends with those guys, you know, Robbie and Cole are super dudes. I've been on a couple of their episodes. I've, I've recorded for them, um, a couple of times and I've just been, since I started listening to them, I've been listening to them at, you know, one and a half times speed. So when I joined their episode, I was like, is, is, is Robbie like drunk or tired or what? And then I real like it, afterwards, I was like, Oh no, <laughs> they don't speak that fast normally. Right. They don't sound like listening to him faster. So yeah. the, the cadence thing doesn't quite <laughs> work out for me, but that's a, it's a really good idea. I may have to do that. I'm going to steal this idea that and ironclad. I know I'm, I've, I've already stolen two ideas this is the, the, the pamphlet of things that I'm stealing from David. Um, I haven't, in- oh no, I did interview ironclad. They were, um, I, they're not coming out for a little while, but I'll, I can send you the audio of that one. So, you know, you'll know what I'm going to, what it's going to sound like. So you can ask different <laughs> questions if you want. Yeah. No, I've, I'm, I'm at the point now where I have work travel coming up holidays. Kids are back at school. So I'm trying to like slow down the people that I'm booking. I had somebody reach out today and I'm like, let's talk yeah. about October or November, you know, cause mm-hmm. I've got a few things you know, going on uh, in the very near, near term future. Um, when you kicked off to begin with, did you have a bunch of episodes in the bucket or did you just record, like record one, rip it out and move to the next one? I just record one, rip it out, move to the next one. That's a yeah. bold move. Yeah. Again, it, it was, um, I knew it was a podcast. Like I was setting it up. I was originally on anchor. I was, I knew I was setting up a podcast type thing, but I didn't know where it was going to go. If it was going to go more than a couple episodes or something if I was going to even get answers back from most of these people. Mm-hmm. So like my first episode uh, with, uh, with Will Persons from uh, old time spirits is a really interesting guy with a great story about his, his whiskey, like Irish whiskey, official Irish whiskey being made in America out of apples. And it's still mm-hmm. considered whiskey. Um, Cause there's a grandfather clause in there, but like I'm, I'm recording it with my AirPods there's no microphone. There's no mm-hmm. over the ears. Like it's just AirPods. Um, so after the first one, like I listened to it and I thought it was okay. Clearly it's the first one, you know, you need a couple to really get into it. And I, so I, I, I was doing that one. And then I happened to reach out to Kyle, Jay at Kyle, because I had met him somewhere. And then I started just meeting people. I mean, like, hey, you know, you want to have a conversation? Um, got a couple of cards made up. And uh, I kind of did during the episodes what, what you did when you started, which you've said before, which is um, to take like a long, you took almost a year, I think, right? To kind of develop your own voice mm-hmm. and cadence and how you speak and how you hear yourself uh, as you're doing this. And I kind of did that just during the episodes. Um you know, I don't, I don't think I could advocate for one or the other. I think it's really up to the person. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of wish I had known my cadence first and how I speak, but yeah, over time I've cut out more of the ums and the, you knows and things like that. So they're, they're always going to be there and people largely ignore them. I, I had a benefit. Um, my, my big reason for holding off on trying to interview someone was number one, I wanted a body of work that my assumption and this was incredibly wrong, but my assumption was it was going to be really, really hard to get someone to agree to join you for an episode. Yeah. My just immediate assumption is like, you know, these 
folks are probably getting inundated by requests and they have jobs beyond talking to some random weird dude who's sitting in his office at nine o'clock on a Wednesday night wanting to talk to them about whiskey. You know, I, I just assume that they're not going to have time. So I need to build a body of work. So I have something for them to go look at and see what I'm about. But also, so I know that this is not a thing where, you know, John's like, I have an idea for a thing I'm going to do. And then six months in, John's like, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm going to stop. And so I've never wasted their time. That was the real reason that I didn't kind of approach that. But if I had known now, <laughs> or known then what I know now, I'd ask people earlier because there's a plethora of folks that, I've only met a couple of no's and most of the time the no is not right now. I'm real busy. Mm-hmm. That's largely what it is. That was incredibly surprising to me. hundred percent. There, I've, I think I agree with you. I, I don't think I've ever had someone outright say no. It's always been either too busy. Um, had a couple where it was like a really small distillery mm-hmm. uh, and they're just like, you know, we'd like to come on, but we don't have any distribution outside the state yet. So it's not really worth it. Check back in mm-hmm. a year. Um, I was amazed really from the beginning at how willing people were, how willing people were to come on and just mm-hmm. to have a conversation. Like thinking back to co- my earliest episodes, like Proof and Wood with Dave Schmier was episode four. And like, I just knew about them because I had a couple of their bottles and, um, I really enjoyed them. And I just wanted to talk about that. And then like Highland Park was my favorite Scottish distillery. So I just reached out and like, that's that one. I thought it was a real catch when I got it because, and I still do, but it was like, I was, it was episode six or something. I had almost nothing out and I'm dealing with Edrington group. Yeah. Which is like McCallan and, and all them. Um, but then going to Michter's and people I knew there and then Lou Bryson, who was a, uh, who is a, uh, a whiskey writing hero of mine. Um, and just having these conversations and then eventually, you know, every other one, someone would recommend me to someone else to talk to. And then, I'd find some of them or just come across them on Instagram or something, reach out. Mm-hmm. And yeah, really, nobody really says no. Cause we're all in this for the same kind of idea that we want to talk mm-hmm. about it. We want to get their products out there. And there's not really incentive to say no, except in those cases that we've already established. Yeah. And I think as long as you're not a pro, cause this is the other part is that I know they've got to have a ton of people that are showing up and just want a free sample of something. And mm-hmm. that largely is not a part of any conversation I ever have when I want somebody to join. I think we were talking about this offline. I don't know that we had uh, talked about it while we were running yet, but usually whenever I have somebody on as an interview, I have already talked about their brand in a one-off episode that didn't have an interview. And I probably have a bottle, um, if, except for a handful of, th- uh, of, of, of distillers that I just can't get a hold of. Um, you know, Mammoth is one of those, uh, out of Michigan. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a fantastic time talking to them, but my local retailers don't have it. Um, I have a retailer in Nashville. I'm going to try to pick some up next week while I'm down in Nashville, but I just don't have it. But most of the time I already have it. And so whenever somebody's like, Oh, you want a sample? That would be great. I would be incredibly appreciative, but I'm not asking for one. I'm asking just for some, you know, a few minutes of your time to, to chit chat, but you've, you've rolled off a, a list of people that, you know, are really, really impressive. Do you have a dream list? Do you have like, you know, five people that like, if I got these people, I know I'm it. Um, I never really thought about it. I, I have a running list of people that I want on there that I want to talk to. I don't really think I have a, um, a dream list because I, 
this is taking me aback because I'm really thinking about this now. Um, well, I, I once recorded yeah. an episode for a person on a Patreon uh, thing that they were doing, and I was criticized for not asking them enough questions. So I'm trying to make sure that I can always ask enough questions. Oh God, I wonder who I have that like poor bastard was. Tonight. I have like I wonder who that. So. <laughs> the problem is most of the people who would be on my dream list are honestly people who are dead. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, other than that, I, I'm more just I want to talk to the newest the newest up and comers you know not the newest in terms of like the flashiest but the newest in terms of who isn't getting attention who i think should you know like i've I've of course done episodes about like river idols or weed or whatever and and um i find that incredibly fascinating so like within that category i definitely want to talk to laura patrizio laura patrizio excuse me who um is doing the scholarly work on a lot of these Rose and Rye reclamation projects and revival projects. Um, Steve Bashore at uh, Manfern Distillery, same kind of reason, like just the historical aspect of that. And in that case, it's more about having just that dream list that kind of keeps evolving. You know, I really want to talk to someone. I want to talk to Eiffel whiskey in Germany and um, like mm-hmm. Stounding in Denmark was a great one. Cause I was like, who else is talking to Stowney except uh, Mark over whiskey cast, you know? Right. And, and yet it's one of my favorite malts right now. It has been, and they've been, it's been over a year since they were on. Um, so that's kind of my answer is, is the dream list. Most of the people who are dead. So I tried to talk to people who are adjacent um, and, uh, you know, ask a question or two about them, but also ask about what's going on in the present. So you mentioned Rosen, um, you know, like that talking to Ari with Mammoth and three court and whatever else he happens to work with and his Rosen project on the islands in Michigan. It's just, mm-hmm. it's like, it's, it's like an insane project that's actually working. You know, uh, I think I read this week oh, where yeah. they've shifted to a second island because they've gotten to the extent of what they can put on South Manitou. So they're on another island now, which mm-hmm. is just impressive. But you also mentioned Mount Vernon Rye and have, so Mount Vernon Distillery is the, the the distillery that is on site at Mount Vernon, which is Washington's home, right? Mm-hmm. Have you so you have you had the rye? I haven't. No. It. So we we did our trip to D.C. as a family, you know, do the due diligence, make sure my children know about the center of the nation, the capital, go see the monuments, Mount Vernon, and and visit um, Monticello, do all the things, you know, history. And, you know, as we go in, I want to see about the whiskey, but I know it's like a 350 ml bottle at like $200. Just, mm-hmm. it's high, you know, and I get it. Like, they're not dealing with a, with a, an economy of scale because it's all still handmade. It's small quantities, whatever. I get yeah. it. I get it. But I was like, I, I can't bring myself to buy what feels like a novelty, but they've got little 50 mls for that are like 30 bucks. It has no business being that good. Like it has no business being that good. It was, you know, and, and and maybe it was because I was expecting it to be novelty rye and it wasn't, but I still have some. I bought two of the little 50 ml bottles and I drank one of the hotel that night. And then I was like, okay, I'm going to wait a week or two before I try this again because maybe it is worth the price. So I, you know, I found it to be incredibly interesting and I look forward. I've heard a couple episodes with them. Um, none of them have been in, at an angle that you're at. So I think, I think that'll be. 
um, a good one, but you don't do just podcasting. Like you write stuff too. Like you've written for a handful of websites, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, ABV network, bourbon and banter, a couple others. Are you still writing for everybody? Or are you, are you cons- consolidating back just to, to your pot, to your website? Um, for now I'm consolidating really with, with my own website and with um, bourbon and banter. Mm-hmm. I think, at at ABV Network, uh, I'm still friends with them. They're great. It's a great group of people. There was no sort of falling out or anything like that. I think I just uh, I didn't have that unique niche there that I could mm-hmm. really have. You know, they're they're on site. Steve Steve Akeley is in St. Louis. Uh, everyone else is in Kentucky, and um, I felt very much there, like I was just the outsider. You know, mm-hmm. I, I had nothing to contribute because I couldn't be on site, jump over to a distillery in the middle of the day and ask a question. <laughs> and again, that's no knock on them. It's just the fact of what it is. But with Bourbon Banter, it's a slightly different build and different community. And um, within that community, I've been able to establish a couple of niches. Like I'm, I'm becoming that American single malt person. Um in their new uh, drink, drink curious platform that they're building up. Uh, I'm hoping to be the kind of Japanese whiskey person also, because it's clearly a, a passion of mine. Um, I don't, in that context, I don't see myself having a voice in bourbon necessarily because there's plenty of other people writing about bourbon, like, and, and rye really like, mm-hmm. and I'm friends with them. Like Frank Dobbins, Burb Your Enthusiasm does a great yep. job of writing and interviewing people. Um, Steve Coombs, the editor, same thing, just great job. Like, I don't need to do- duplicate what they're doing. So I got to find my own thing. And, um, yeah, so, so really just pulling back. And it's also a recognition too of you can only write so much. <laughs> You've only got so much in the head, uh, so much time. And, uh, I've, as I've been trying to really grow my own stuff, I've tried not to double dip across them. So, like, if I'm writing, when I wrote the article for ABV Network on Fort Hamilton Distillery, for example, um, I didn't post anything on my own website about it because it would split, it splits the ticket, you know? And mm-hmm. so I've tried to do the same thing where I'll minimize the reviews on my own site or I'll shorten them, you know, kill the darlings, shorten a couple things and throw that in an article instead for someone else. And that way you get the crossover without, uh, Double dipping. Mm-hmm. So who do you listen to, watch, read? Like, you know, we, we've kind of talked around it a little bit. You know, like wh- where are you going to, like, what are the things? Like I have, and not necessarily even just whiskey, like just anything, right? So like I've got a handful of podcasts that I listen to on a regular basis. I've got um, a couple of politics podcasts. I've got uh, a couple of mental health podcasts. And I've got, you know, a handful of whiskey podcasts. Like what, what are you listening to, reading, watching that – kind of helps inform who you are and what you do. Uh, the big thing for, especially for podcasts is uh, comedians. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always been fascinated with comedy, with stand-up comedy and um, humor. And clearly I have a very dark sense of humor as, <laughs> as anyone who knows me for more than 30 seconds finds out. Yep. Um, a very dark, very twisted sense of humor. I love wordplay. Um and so I listen to a lot of them. I mean, I listen to like Tom Segura, Bert Kreischer, um, Whitney Cummings, uh, to a lesser extent, Whiskey Ginger, you know, Andrew Santino. Mm-hmm. Um, I listen to a couple of like Scrubs rewatch podcasts. Um, so 
fake doctors, real friends. To be honest, the earlier episodes were better than the later ones. But um, the point being that, it, you know, I was Wait, the podcast or the TV show. I mean, honestly, both. But uh, the <laughs> hey, look, the... so I'm going I'm to stop you just for a half second. So we're in this mode. <laughs> I've got two children. We're forcing them to rewatch movies from our childhood and our teen years. So anything 80s, 90s. You know, eighties, nineties to the mid nineties, lateish nineties. And mm-hmm. this weekend, uh, one of those was clueless, right? Okay. I 100% like wiped from my brain that one of the characters, boyfriends is Turk from Scrubs. Yep. I watched mm-hmm. it. I was like, Oh my God. You know, cause we used to watch Scrubs all the time. Like that was before the office was the office. It was Scrubs for us. Mm-hmm. It was yep. never friends. It was scrubs for us. But yeah. sorry. So you, you get some scrubs where you watch podcasts. Yep. You've and got like uh, a, comedians. You know how long, you know how long it was after I was watching scrubs that I figured out that that was also PD from under, from uh, remember the Titans? Like, <laughs> yep. Took me, it took me an embarrassingly long time. I'll put it that uh-huh. way. Um, I'm not good at recognizing those people. Like I was watching, I was watching Wheel of Time. This is a short digression. Um, cause I just finished the first book. So I'm watching the series now. There's this minor character, minor character. My wife walks over, Jess walks over, and she's like, wait a second, who's that? That's Catherine of Aragon from the Tudors. I'm like, where the fuck did you pull that one from? <laughs> um, she, she's great at at least recognizing, like, I think that person's from somewhere. Um, I'm not. I told you not to read The Wheel of Time. I told you not to do it. Okay. But it's, I know, I know. I'm breaking it up, though. I'm not reading them straight. I'm reading them, like, one book. Then a whiskey book, then that, then so you're going to be so. reading for the next eight years, probably. It's like four hundred of these books. At least it's closed ended though. Like, at least it's done. It's not like sort of. Yeah. There's still world building on it, but whatever. Yeah, they are. But like the core fourteen books are still right. I mean, that's insane alone. The canon, the canon. Still, yeah. yeah. All right. So two right, nerds. So other po- got a backup. So, yeah, so, <laughs> right. So other other shows. So um, so yeah. So I listen to a lot of comedy. I, I still watch like every special that comes on Netflix. I don't finish all of them, but I'll start all of them. Uh, I there's something about like comedy in particular. Like I watch a lot of food shows, also a lot, a ton of TLC, way too much 90 Day Fiance. Um, but there's something about the comedy piece that's always really reverberated with me. Um, it's always informed how I speak, how I think. You know, copying people's jokes at first help me to build up my own joke repertory and you know how to work things together like robin williams was a personal hero uh and the way that his mind worked as insane as it was was just Mm -hmm. bouncing all over um slowing it down and seeing okay this is from it might be from point a to point p but like the 16 points in between you can chart them if you go through them um and comedians good ones at least um have a very good sense of of timing of reading the audience of hearing what's hearing the silence in between the sounds mm-hmm. um also something i learned in music like the the rests are important for a reason and in doing so that's how i really developed how i wanted to to speak both for the podcast and elsewhere and how i wanted to write um i write very closely to how i speak somewhat fewer digressions <laughs> understandably right, um, because you can find... edit out the digressions before publication exactly. right exactly. once you started talking it's it's, 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 it's there it yeah 
So that's that's really where I do it. In terms of other podcasts and shows, I mean, um, I again, I purposely don't listen to a lot of whiskey ones. Mm-hmm. Never really have. At first, I didn't know about them, and now I don't want to because I, I don't want to take on someone else's persona. Right. Uh, and I'm trying to think. There was there was something else that I wanted to end there. Um, with oh, I know. Oh, so. Also shows like um, Scared to Death or Time Suck, like Dan Cummins, or mm-hmm. um, really good storytelling podcasts. Because I consider that, if I'm being honest, I consider that a weakness in my repertoire is I'm not a great storyteller. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think. Like I, I just I go in too many tangents. I, there are too many directions I want to go in. I always think of something else I want to throw in there. So. The way that um, certain people structure their shows so that there's a script in front of them that they can be reading, lift their head, throw something in there, and then go right back to it uh, is is how I try to kind of keep things together on the show because that way, no matter what we go off on, there's something to kind of bring you back to, oh, I want to make sure I get this question in because I've, I've taken the time do the research. And at that point you're being loyal to yourself and saying, I've done the research. I've, I've made up these questions and this outline. The person's given me their time. I want to take advantage of that in the most positive way um, and make it worth their time as well. Yeah. And I, I find myself in the same place on a regular basis. I try to be you know aware of other people's time, but um, that's what I'm, I use my notepad to bring me back to reality, but I don't, I don't, I mean, I probably would take objection to you not being a good storyteller because the fact that you do have kind of a clear line of where you want to go. And most of the time in every episode I've listened to, you go that direction. Like you, you may have a a divergence, but that's any good story is you explore the side quest as deep as you need to before you come back to the main story. Like that's just it, you know, and, and I've, storytelling was where I started from. I like the idea of storytelling. I want to talk to anybody who is a storyteller. Uh, even if they're not whiskey related, because, you know, I've got two kids said it a few minutes ago, so that's repetitive. Um, and you know, they, they're going to start at least one of them. She's in middle school. She's going to start getting the question. Like, what do you want to do when you grow up? What do you want to do? And that's a terrible question to ask a kid because mm-hmm. I was going to be a surgeon whenever I was in, in, in elementary school. And then in middle school and high school, I was going to be a lawyer and I work in software now. None of those things are like each other. They're all very, very different. But the, the thing that I've, I've encouraged them is like, you know, if anybody asks you, just tell them you want to be a storyteller because no matter what job you do, if you can create and craft a, a good story about what work you're doing, you'll be successful. You'll have a, a high degree of success. And so and you're not going to have success with your podcast if it's just like all over the place and crazy, unless it is just wildly hilarious. And that's not mm-hmm. the, the thing that you're necessarily going after. And I'm not going to lie to you. So I have these questions here because I, I did my research. Have questions, you know, who do you listen to and watch? And the next one right underneath that is top five comedians ever, because I know that you're into comedians and I know that Robin Williams was, was on the list. And so he can't be on the top five list. What is it? What's the top five? Fair. Um, I'm going to answer that question, but remind me to go back to what I thought I was going to be in elementary school and how the storytelling angle works there too. So top five, um, non Robin Williams, uh, George Carlin, it's got to be there for, really for the wordplay and mm-hmm. his, his love of words, his true, just 
unabashed love of words. There's there's a there's like a thirty minute bit in most of his stand ups that's literally just about words in the English language. So I'm mm-hmm. with you. It's he's, he's on mine as well. So absolutely. Um, and to to another extent with him, I appreciate comedians who can work clean or who curse away, but ha- mm-hmm. but using profanity for a purpose is something that I think he was particularly good at. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, he's definitely on there. Um, I would say, again, Tom Segura is up there. I think he's one of the best storytelling comedians out there today. Um, Oh, God, who else? Um, Someone who's really under the radar. um, I don't even know if you'll have heard of him. uh, Kyle Kinane. Um, I'll have to go look it up now. Oh, he is hilarious. He's got a, um, a set on Netflix that's... He's put out a couple albums, but he's got a set on Netflix about about the KKK, and um, it's it's just it's just so worth it. It's so good. Oh man, who else? Um, oddly enough, I love Whitney Cummings on her podcast. I'm not as big of a fan on her actual comedy, but I love her comedy writing. So I'll put her yes. up for that. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, I love her comedy writing. What's that? Three. Carlin. What about her TV show? Like she had a great TV show, right? She had, yeah, multiple. I mean, two, she, had, she had two, two, two loved, shows. Yeah, she had one. Whitney. She had, she had Whitney. She had, um, she wrote Two Broke Girls, which I, I loved that one. Um, I mean, she wrote for Roseanne. Not as big of a fan of that one, but like, still a good skill behind it. Right. Um. Uh, let's see who else. Uh, I. I'm trying to like think of. Not just today comics, but also um, <laughs> historical ones. Yeah, historical ones too. Um, I think uh, Jonathan Winters as well, um, just for his ability. I would put him like kind of a slash with zero mustel, just the ability to have that plastic face or rubber face that could do anything. Um, and uh, I'm also trying to think of a female comedian now because I feel like I've just like put a bunch, a bunch of dicks of out there. Yeah. Um, it's all guys. You're misogynistic jackass. I know. What you're I know. Yeah. Whitney kind of counts there sometimes while you're on a cord. Um, you're not going to throw Lisa Lampanelli in there. No, nah, I was never a big fan. She was too profane for me. It was um, without purpose. It, it was yeah. regardless of, you know, without purpose. Yeah. I follow. Like, I just remember, I remember her being on a roast one time. Someone made a joke about her. That was like, it was around the time of the Octomom. Mm-hmm. And this joke stuck with me that um, this, basically she and the Octomom had both had 80 fingers inside of her at the same time. Um, I was like, okay, that's funny. That one's funny. But, but that was every that was every roast where she was there. It was always a, a joke about promiscuity. Um, mm-hmm. exactly. as, you know, I mean, we, we can go down the like misogynistic rap. Like, oh, if it was a dude, nobody would have cared, right? Like, oh. Right. But – or maybe for the fifth one, I'll throw out um, from today. I would throw out Taylor Tomlinson mm-hmm. as well. Um, I like, and she's representative of a class of comedians I like who are very self-reflective, uh, particularly in their um, struggles with uh, disease or, or mental disease or, or just troubles throughout their life. Um, oh, I should have put John Mulaney in there too. Same reason. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I I've always appreciated people who in whatever art form they are 
use that art form to express themselves, to get things out. And uh, really at the end of the day, you're turning pain into something positive. So we're 48 minutes in and I haven't just at all discussed like what you're drinking right now and what I'm drinking. Like we just did that beforehand and it largely doesn't matter, but um, we both decided to go with some Bardstown. So what are you drinking tonight? I'm drinking the Bardstown for Cullen collaborative series. Are you sure that's how you pronounce that? It's either for Cullen or for Cullen and uh, it could be for Cullen. It could right? be for Cullen. It could. Be. None of us. I'm from Western Kentucky, so I'm I, not a linguist and don't need to be a part of this discussion at all. I just, uh, you know. I mean, it's it's hard to tell. It's one of the like least known Irish whiskey brands, and it comes mm-hmm. out of the same. It comes out of Middleton and Powers. Uh, it's under the Powers and Powers Court line, um, mm-hmm. but it's all coming out of Mid- Middleton, where 90% of Irish whiskey comes from. Yeah, but, um, and I just stuck with yeah. some Bardstown Five for Pavit. And that's one that I know because I've heard other people pronounce it. So I'm good with that. Mm-hmm. You know, yep. stay away from the Ferrand because it's Ferrand or Ferrand. I don't know if you got to roll those R's. I'm pretty sure you're supposed to, but you know, you know, I took, I took five years of Italian. I still can't roll my R's. <laughs> I took three years of French. The first two were intentional and the last year was a spite year. Um, <laughs> but it was, <laughs> that's a story for different. So going back, you said, what was it you wanted to do in elementary school? You wanted to be in elementary school? Uh, Yes, I wanted to be a, um, I forget which one was for day and which one was for night, but I wanted to be a firefighter slash pizza maker. <laughs> nice. So, I mean, what's wrong with that? Like, what's, what's the problem there? Nothing at all. I was just, I, I was like teased by my own family for that because it was just, it was so specific. And so <laughs> I was just like, you want to say, I like pizza. What do you make want? dope food? Like what's wrong with that? There's nothing here. You know, like, exactly. but is it like New York style pizza? Is it Detroit? We can bring this back again to the pizza conversation oh, for the what love of fuck. Pizza? Okay. So earlier today, I already recorded one episode with, um, with, uh, Matt wrestling with whiskey. Mm-hmm. And we brought that up because he's from Chicago. Uh-huh. And the people in our chat need to listen to that episode because apparently according to him, saying that and look i can't be the shit out of anybody but he clearly can so um he says that true chicago style pizza is not deep dish it's the tavern pie yeah, so you're talking about the tavern pie where it's the the stuff is flipped and it's just like you got to eat it with a fork pizza yeah. uh he yeah he described it as like it was you know squared off oh kind of no like, that, yeah. So that's not. It sounded. It sounded more like Detroit style, to be honest. But the, the, um, this is yeah. this is not what I've heard from every one of my friends who have ever lived in Chicago before. Now they all don't like Chicago style pizza, but they claim that is Chicago style pizza. They're all like, "No, nah, don't." I mean, like you got to eat it once, but after that, like you're fine. Don't don't worry yeah, about he, it. Man. He accepted that it was part of Chicago, that it was representative of Chicago, but he was like, "That's not true." The squared off pizza. Detroit style, and it wasn't. Even, it's not even Detroit style. That's a pan pizza. Detroit just claimed yeah. it because they didn't have anything better to do. Like they lost the car industry and they're like, now what? Let's claim, let's claim, you know, Pizza Hut's pan pizza. I mean, they, they had to sell their own museum just to keep the town clean. I mean, that's, 
it's I mean it's, it's getting rough. I mean, let's be honest. It, it really is. And the thing is, you know, like, uh, anyways, we, we we can go on just bagging on Detroit forever, but yeah, like, you live in lose, New York ish, and yeah, we're, we're going to lose. We're going to lose all, you know, 10, 12 of our listeners who are from that area, and we can't afford to lose this. You think I have 12 listeners? Come on, man. I've seen your downloads. I know you've got at least 15. Come on. (laughs) You know, it's probably 15 regular folks, but hey, I'm up to like 200 watch hours on YouTube, so that's something. Somebody just left it on play. I think, you know, I would – so I don't know. Does does your family know you do this? Like you're – not your wife, but like the rest of your family knows that you do whiskey podcasting. Yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I, I, my family does it and this is intentional and it's not because it's whiskey podcasting, but, um, the, I think it was, it was, yes, Ron White was, was doing a stand up special. He was like, everybody that's here, that's a fan. I really appreciate you being here or whatever. And for everybody that you brought with you, fuck you. Like you don't want to be here. You're just here because someone brought you. And that's why I don't tell my family is specifically <laughs> because they're going to come, they're going to conflate my understanding of download numbers just because they're like, we support our family member. They're, they're nice people. They really are, but I don't, I don't need them here. I don't need them here. So I, I leave them out specifically. So I could, I could go from 15 to 30 real fast if I just told family members, but I'm not going to tell family members about it. Um, so comedy is listen for that meeting. But what's that? I don't think any of my family members listen. Right. But. Well, I mean, that's because your family hates you probably. Um, I mean, wouldn't, I mean, don't you it's, hate your family? No, no, no. Just I hate you. Why yeah. would I invite the person, a person on that I hate, unless I was just going to try to embarrass them with some sort of a background or something. Um, you know, that's the, no, I'm, I'm not going to do that. Okay. No. Uh, so professionally you do a completely different line of work, um, that revolves around performing arts, right? Um, mm-hmm. Sort of around, I mean, you're tertiary to, tangential to, however you want to relate it. Um, did you go after this job because it was in the arts or did you get the job and now arts are just a part of your life? Like, is this a thing that you're like always been, yay, arts? Um, I have always been uh, a fan of and, and in the performing arts. Um, so really, I'm the person who uh, asks for money for the performing mm-hmm. arts. So I'm, I'm right now I'm doing mostly grant work. So corporate foundation relations, government grants for, uh, for dance theater Harlem. And, um, they're a, you know, contemporary ballet company, um, mostly African-American black, uh, and, uh, Latinx dancers from diverse backgrounds, but you know, I've never been a dancer. I blew up my knee when I was seven. So, um, that part has been a little foreign to me, but the performing arts has always been, very, very close to my heart. Um, I've been playing instruments since I was two or three. Um, I play or can play seven. I sing, met my wife in an acapella group. So, you know, music especially. Um, but I guess if you include comedy, like music and, the, and performing arts have always been incredibly important to me, mm-hmm. uh, important to who I am and something I've defined myself through in the past. So you blew your knee out at seven doing performing arts or something different? Uh, basketball. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I didn't know if like you were, you were doing some ballet and you blew your knee out, which, you know, was, is it, I mean, it sad and impressive at seven years old, you know, cause usually I mean, you're pretty bendy at seven. <laughs> we um, talk about peaking early. That was, yeah. Um, no, yeah, I, I was, I used to be multi-sport. I was playing basketball, baseball. Um, never played football, but played soccer, uh, 
hockey because right, you weren't interested in, in concussions. You know, it's, it's not, not really my thing. No. What instruments do you play? Piano and oboe are my primaries, and then I can mm-hmm. play um, all the saxophones because once you learn one, you learn all of them. That's what, um, that's what they all say. I mean, yeah, it's the same fingerings, just more spread out, but it's exactly the same. Uh, flute, uh, viola, and I'm forgetting one. Um, but I mean, you get the idea. Uh, those, yeah. and um, I mean, half of them I learned only so I could uh, write for them because I, I compose or used to at least compose. Um, and uh, like viola, it's in a totally, it's in its own clef. So you gotta. Yeah. <clears throat> know what how to how to transpose and what clef to write in so i was just learning it so i knew how to write for it um oboe is uh <laughs> oboe is probably the most challenging instrument out there and i don't say that as a brag i say that as a warning <laughs> uh if you know someone who likes oboe or plays the oboe um they're, they're probably clinically going to, insane oh they're going to be if they're professional yeah. they you have to be uh, and anyone who's grown up doing it is doing it because they didn't want to carry around a heavier instrument. Or their parents made them. And that's that's no las dos. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, and I was in band for a very short period of time between sixth and eighth grade. And that was the same conversation that was around oboes then. And we didn't even have an oboe player. It's just like, that's too hard. We're not trying to teach any middle schooler how to play oboe in a public mm-hmm. school system in Kentucky. It's just not an option. You got you, you want to play trumpet? You want to play trombone? You want to play a drum? Like we're gonna keep it simple here. This is Kentucky. Mm-hmm. Like, we don't need an oboe because um, it's not even happen. my schools. Even my schools. I mean, look, there there were only ever two of us. Mm-hmm. One usually, and maximum two, because there's only two two uh, spots really. Uh, I can count on one hand the number of pieces that have more than two oboe uh, lines in them and the nobody ever plays them. any is something right like yeah not many people are counting that as a, as a thing yeah and it's only it's only the people like Mahler who have these thousand or Mahler or um oh the fuck's his name I'm just gonna write it in my head the ring series guy uh Wagner who have these thousand piece orchestras and I wasn't gonna be able to help you out there you were digging for it but it was I'm, that's okay I, I was gonna come up with that one but like who have a thousand piece workers who need three or four oboes because you know percentages and all that, right? But they're, yeah, they're only two because it's it's so incredibly competitive, and that's why they're all insane. I've never met a professional oboe player who wasn't, um, as Dan Cummins would put it, visual like photogenically insane. Like you could diagnose mental illness off of a picture of them. I'm gonna have to write. You know? So I usually keep a list of words that I learn whenever I talk to other people on episodes and photogenically mm-hmm. insane. Like I understand both of those words, but I've never heard, heard them put together. And so now I'm I'm gonna keep that because I know some people that are photogenically insane. Like I, yeah. I but I've never heard that before. So it's it, thank you, yeah. thank you so much for like, that. like you look at Charles Manson, photogenically mm-hmm. insane. Yes. The guy behind the Heaven's Gate cult. Oh yeah, done. That guy was yeah. look. So th- there was a a, a blogger handful of years ago that um, was a waiter in New York and he was just writing about being a waiter in New York and how you develop as a waiter, you develop the thousand mile stare. You know, mm-hmm. Whenever people just start yelling at you or whatever, you just kind of stare off into the distance. It's a crazy look that mm-hmm. heaven's gate guy. That's what he had. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. What he had. It was a thousand year, thousand mile stare. He was looking at the spaceship they were going to get on. That's what he was oh, doing. Yeah. 
he he was able to see it with his human eyes. He was mm-hmm. you know, the the lizard people were there. Yeah, and there was a there was a great bit on Saturday Night Live about them. <laughs> it was after they had all killed themselves, which is sad. That's a terrible thing that happened. But it was like they were partying on a spaceship with the aliens, right? And they're all wearing their track suits and their bald heads and they're dancing around and mm-hmm. and with like, brand new news. Nikes. Can't forget those. Exactly. New Balance. Yeah. New Balance. New New Balance. New what? I'm pretty sure it was okay. New Balance. Okay. Maybe it was. Maybe you might. No, I think it was Nike. No, it was Nikes. It had the swish on it. Yeah, because just do it. That was the. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Any, anyways, they were like it was like a man on the street interview with the people as they're partying on the spaceship, and they're like, "Yeah, we were right. We knew all these things." And like one of the characters pops out of the back. He's like, "Except for that whole like that whole like castration thing. Like we were way off base on that part. That part was not. <laughs> but, but the rest of it was right." I always loved Saturday Night Live for those kinds of things. Um. <laughs> Let me think. All right, so you're you're coming to Kentucky. Um, I'm not going to give a date range, so that way the 12 people who listen to this that are local don't try to hunt you down. Um, what what is the thing that you're most excited about doing? You've been here before, you know, obviously uh, a few months ago. But what's the thing you're most excited about on this trip that, that you want to experience, see, do that is part of Kentucky, Tennessee, Indiana route that you're doing? Number hmm. number one thing is probably, and this is going to sound really like saccharine and then just cheesy, but um, meeting these people that I have only met either through screens, mm-hmm. um, you know, like I'm I'm going to like Stephen Fonte is taking me on a tour of Cave Hill Cemetery, and then we're getting drinks at Bernie Lovers. Um, I think I might have said that earlier, but um. So that's, I'm not trying to brag there. It's just, hap- just happens. It's, it's part of the question. Two hours You're fine. No, nobody, nobody. Yeah. Um, what's criticizing you yet? Then, um, I would, I was asking the guy I know at Bardstown and I just was like, Hey, you know, I'm going to be coming down. Um, anything I should be looking for? And it's like, Oh, you know, no, we got the plantation rum series. Mm-hmm. Something that was a really bad name for collaboration, but still, uh, the, they've got the rum series. They got, you know, Discovery 8, which I've got, um, Infusion, but, uh, you know, we could fit you in on a tour. You should grab lunch while you're there. Maybe if I'm in office, it's really that. Um, like I'm thrilled to go to these distilleries. I'm thrilled to go back to Four Roses because that's just probably the most beautiful place I was at in terms of distilleries while I was there the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, visit Copper and Kings, explore Louisville a little more, like go to the, I'm, I'm a history buff. So I'm looking forward to the Louisville Slugger, the Getz, the Frasier, mm-hmm. uh, and that kind of thing. And, also doing a distillery visit with Alan Bishop and like distilling alongside him. I have no idea what's in store for that, but I'm excited as fuck. <laughs> that's, that's why I'm, I'm trying to find, cause we were, so we went to French Lick last fall and there's a, a place locally that's called Will Stem and it's like a wildlife preserve type thing where you can do like a drive through safari, but they have like cabins and stuff and it was like fall break for my kids and there's an indoor water park, which is like what, Amer- what, why America is great is, you know, indoor water parks. Um, you know, and so we were like, well, we'll go over there. And so I went, but this is before I've ever had a conversation with Alan Bishop at all. Like I've never talked to him. Um, and so I go in and buy a few things or whatever. And then, you know, I, I, I did an interview with him. We talked for a couple of hours and he was like, you know, after we're done, we, we sat on and talked for another half an hour, 45 minutes after we closed the, the live stream. He's like, yeah, you need to come up, you know, we'll come up on a weekday and we'll distill or whatever. And then I, since then, I've been trying to find a window in my schedule because 
I'm going to be terrible at it, but it's going to be great fun. I just know this. And so I'm, I'm a little envious of that one. I, I'll tell you, man, I mean, he probably said this, but all you got to do is just give him a date. Yeah. And he'll fit you in. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. But it's, you know, it's like a four hour drive from here. So I have to like, have to plan uh, yeah. and do the things, you know, but, uh, that, it, it'll be fun. Right, and then yeah. you're, you're going down to, to Uncle Nearest as well, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. That one I'm really excited for. Um, doing Uncle Nearest and Jack back to back. Um, could have phrased that better, but that's fine. And, uh, what's a little necrophilia between friends? So, um, <laughs> you know, but you didn't think we were going to go to that. Topic the 12 tonight. people who listen to this, they'll chuckle and, you know, you'll be fine. Either that or it'll be dead silence. It's fine. So the, Hi-oh. yeah. But yeah, Uncle Nearest definitely, I, I'm really excited to see what Fawn and, and Victoria, um, have built there and, and, I'm purposefully doing that one before the Jack Daniels experience just to kind of get a grounding first in that history. And uh, to Brian Foreman's credit, they've done a lot at Jack Daniels to mm-hmm. to uh, acknowledge the history. But then again, as as Fawn said when I was interviewing her, um, Brian Foreman also got really, really lucky that that was the history. Um Yeah. Because there are a lot of other ones that uh, are, not, are not that, like, not that. Well, like it's a, it's a prime example, and I'm glad we're at a place where we can have true discussions, you know, more accurate depictions of things. But while we were doing our tours of Mount Vernon and Monticello, they're changing and displaying more appropriate representations of what was happening in the time frame. Mm-hmm. And they have to start every single one of their tours with the same disclaimer, like. We're going to give you what is the most accurate portrayal of what happened during that time frame. We're not going to sugarcoat it anymore. If you have some disagreements or you personally feel some way, like don't take it out on our tour guides because people lose their shit over this because, you know, we had a very whitewashed version of history mm-hmm. and, and Jack did luck out <laughs> incredibly so. And, yeah. you know, that's, I guess one of the benefits of the bulk of bourbon and whiskey being in Kentucky is that Kentucky couldn't decide what it wanted to do. So it was like halfway slaveholding, halfway not. And so most of the brands are dead and brought back and maybe we don't know for sure or whatever, but Tennessee's Tennessee. And, um, but to that end, we're, we're able to have a better discussion on truth as opposed to the, the, the version that the South wanted to portray for a very long time, because and you know, another day when we're not live streaming, I, I can give you very distinct portions of what my elementary and middle school education looked like in the pseudo South, you know, cause we're, we're, we're sharing a border with Tennessee in the County that I live in. Sure. So anyways, so uncle nearest and, and, and Jack both going to be fantastic places to go. Um, what, yep. what else are you excited about? And then, uh, of course, you know, you and I are going to be meeting up in MB Roland. Mm-hmm. Uh, really looking forward to that. That, you know, it seems to be like that once a month tour. So I, I was trying to also schedule around those because of course I'd be down for any tour, but if I can get a really like vaccine tour, mm-hmm. um, what else? Uh, and then just like going through the food and all the bars that are there, <laughs> you know, I'm trying to, I, I understand that like when I was down there in Memorial Day for, for, uh, Timbit weekend, I, it was both incredibly freeing because I was in Kentucky for the first time, mm-hmm. um, but also understandably constraining because you want to be there for the events. Thanks. Yep. Yeah. And like I, I was in the car with Eric Jansen and we were having a grand old time. 
I got an email from Bernie Lubbers saying, um, hey, I know you're down here. You want to grab a drink tonight? Yep. And it was the night of the live stream. Like, and, then, and I was like, oh, fuck. Like, yes, I do. Mm -hmm. But and I honestly I asked Eric and we had a conversation in the car. I was like, you know, I don't know when I'm coming back because at that point I hadn't booked the next trip yet. Um, I don't know how long it's going to be until I come back. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, you know, if I don't want to. Basically, I didn't want to screw up another way. Yeah. I didn't want to offend Bernie. I didn't want to offend um, the group and who I was with mm -hmm. and all that. And um, ultimately, obviously, I was at the live stream and I was like, that's what I'm here for. Right. Um, well, and, and Bernie yeah. is one of those people that travels enough that he understands when you're in town visiting, sometimes the schedule just doesn't line up and there's going to be yeah. the next time. Yeah. And, and that helped when I kind of took a step back and I was like, no, he, he gets it. He's fine with it. Um, mm -hmm. And and like I said, we're making it work I mean, next week. But uh, uh, yeah, the. But it was also so the weekend was constrained just because we we had these events and we wanted to be together and, and do those events and which was great and I don't take anything away from it. It also of course meant though that there were plenty of places around that I didn't get to go like I you know watch El proper neat. Um, we did get to go to Justin's House of Bourbon and a couple of stores. I visited um, Chad at my daily bourbon uh, over his store. Um, so we got to do a couple of those things, but not really any of the bars or the big collections where you could try stuff and um right. so I'm, I'm working a lot like i'm doing in the going to steel box going to neat going to watch a proper going to um any of the others that i could probably throw off the top of my head uh just to experience that and then of course the the food as well like i'm, I'm going to doc crows mm -hmm. and a couple of the just restaurants that are i mean the food is is good i'm sure anyway but even if the food wasn't you go there because it's going to that place yep yeah, no, no um, there there are places that have, you know, substandard food, but it's the environment, it's the atmosphere, it's the experience, it's all the things. You know, it, it is what it is. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I, that, I'm really looking at this as like a week long. You've got a really intense schedule. <laughs> Just yes, I, I looked at, it, I'm like, there, there's so much involved in it, and mm -hmm. but it's the kind of thing that if if you don't have, um, if you have a person that came with you that is doing the exact same thing. You can make it work, but as soon as you involve a, a family or a spouse that maybe not be interested in all the things, like that schedule mm -hmm. doesn't work. Like it's because because it's like, no. oh, well, I want to go do something different for a little bit because mm -hmm. I've been doing whiskey for five straight days and I want to do something else, you know. But it mm -hmm. is it, 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 it's jealousy inducing, you know. The FOMO is real for for everyone who's looking at the calendar, like well, I gotta go to work, like I'm going to Boise. That's where I'm gonna be going while you're gone. I'm going to Boise. I mean, you can bring back. Plenty of Blantons from there. You're probably not going to do that. I, the, uh, one of the upsides <laughs> is that one of the, the, the podcasters from Chill Filter, he lives in Boise. And so I may get an opportunity to go meet him. Like, hey, you know, in person. Yep. And the same thing. Like that, I enjoyed, um, I had the benefit of meeting Perry and Eric before Tim Bip weekend at Whiskey Weekend mm -hmm. Batch 4. But aside from that, everyone else in that room I had interacted with only in a virtual sense. And it is really nice to kind of get to know those people, like to, to see them in person and decide like, I do like this. I don't like this person. <laughs> like you, you know, for sure now, because you, you mm -hmm. met who they really, really are. Um, yeah. so we're, we're, we're pushing in on, we're, we're pushing in on, uh, what 11 o'clock. 
for you? Yeah, pushing it. Along yeah, I'm. I'm fine though. I'm good. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So I way off of what we've been talking about. Um, what's something that is either happening or coming up in whiskey that you're like, I'm super pumped about this, excited about this thing, whatever it is. Should we exclude American single malt? Cause I feel like that. Yeah. I think you can't give the, 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 the classification yeah. of American single malt. I think we, we can talk ad nauseum on that one and we may come back to it, but right. yeah, you can't have that one. That one's too easy. All right. Um, hmm. I got a good one. Um, I think that it's been 10 years-ish since uh, Angel's Envy came out. Mm-hmm. And it was one of the first like large-scale finished American whiskeys. And I think we're finally getting to a point where more – not only are more distillers and producers – finishing their whiskeys but they're doing it well right okay and i think we're really at a at an inflection point there um i look at i think the it's again going to be from the ground up the smaller ones are doing it better than the bigger guys and even the bigger guys when they get it right it's the smaller scale like um you know a couple of jack daniels tennessee tasters are finished excellent finishes um, but that's an experimental line. It's not mm-hmm. scalable. But others like ammunition um, out in California, finishing, you know, they're buying MGP and then finishing it in their own wine casks. Um, and it's it's unique and it's good. Um, I'm not a huge beer finish guy, so I can't really talk to a lot of those. Um, but especially the wine finishes and, and experimenting with different kinds, types of wine finishes, rum finishes. Um, even tequila finishes, um, you know, listeners know I'm not a tequila, my listeners know that I'm not a tequila or agave spirit person, but I really think that, uh, producers and distillers are taking a look at finishing and not just doing it for the sake of finishing, but really exploring what can be done mm-hmm. and not losing the spirit in the process of finishing, which has always been the you know, the tripping in front of the finish line. Yeah. And I mean, you, you've got a, you've got some smaller brands that are doing finishing in a somewhat more nefarious way where they're burying the spirit behind. Mm-hmm. They're using, you know, quote unquote wet barrels where right. there's some volume of liquid that remains, whether it be honey or mm-hmm. some other thing that exists. But, you know, I, I've American single malted finishing sort of are the, the place where, um, if you're a whiskey nerd and you're tired of not being able to get the limited allocations, you can chase down finishes. Finishes are a thing that you can go after. And, um, seeing that, you know, like what the guys at Penelope are doing, you know, they've got their, mm-hmm. their rose, which they've been doing for a little while. And they're at the point now where they've got to like start up a rose vineyard and make their own rose. So they have enough casks to finish their whiskey in. Like this mm-hmm. is a thing they're doing. Um, but they've got an orange wine that they're working on as well. And I, you know, I didn't even know what orange wine was before that. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's so good. See, it's, it's that, good. And, and that's where then the, the, the other part of it for me becomes like, now I've got to chase down the original spirit so I can understand mm. what it is, right? You know, like how, yep. how do I know how white port is going to impact this blackened thing that, that Wes Henderson is doing with blackened, right? He's doing a collab mm-hmm. with them and they're doing a white port. I don't know right. what white port tastes like. I don't know mm-hmm. what impact it's supposed to have. Yep. I, 
again, I'm just talking to you, uh, to, to Matt. Uh, I was talking about the, oh, I was talking about the, the for Colin. I, I was, um, I popped it on that. So, um, sorry, it wasn't a fresh pop. I apologize. That's on me. But the, the Irish whiskey that's in here is finished in Marsala casks. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it fit very well because the, the Yellowstone limited edition for this year is partially finished in Marsala casks as well. It's Marsala Superiore. And he asked, you know, well, what is Marsala? <laughs> what is Marsala wine? Um, and I, you know, told him what it was and, um, I can tell you too if you want, but that's not really important to this part of the story. The, the point being that you, you knew which companies were being used in terms of finishing barrels. And that's the, that's the other facet to the finishing that I think is even more important is, um, taking ammunition, for example. I, I was at an event with them a couple months ago. They had their whiskeys and their wines. Um, and they also had their whiskeys at cast strength that, uh, the founder in his words, Turkey based it out of the bottle, out of the barrels. Uh, and you got, I got to taste the finished product, but also the actual specific wine that it was finished mm-hmm. in and that localization. And if not local, the, um, I don't think transparency is the right word here. I think it's, it's more about just, um, I don't know what the right word is, but basically knowing that if I want to taste what that wine finish is like or what that wine is, I know where I can go. Um, Ironclad is mm-hmm. another one that's, that, you know, I mean, um, if you get to taste their, um, their flying fox petite Bordeaux finish, um, I am dying to get a bottle of that wine of the petite Bordeaux. Uh, it's out this year. They'll probably get more next year. They're out of it this year. But I want to know because I want to taste that wine. I love the finished product, so I want to know what it is. If it's something I don't like, similarly, I want to taste what the finish was. And mm-hmm. I want, if it was a finished product, I want to taste what it was and see was it the finish? Was it the whiskey? Um, right. Was it just these, a way that those two things merged together and it didn't work? Yeah. Because sometimes that happens. And it, it's, yeah. I, I appreciate, you know, because they're, what they're exploring is provenance of the barrel. Right. Like you're getting the provenance mm-hmm. of the barrel, you know, yeah. where it came from instead of just saying it's a cab barrel. Like it's, just, mm-hmm. you, you know, the, right. the, um, Thomas Moore did, you know, Chardonnay mm-hmm. casks. Okay. Well, whose Chardonnay is it? You know, and this is right. a thing that happens in Scotch too. You know, like, oh, we're finishing in sherry casks or sherry butts or whatever. Like, mm-hmm. is this good sherry or is it a company that makes sherry just so they can age it and then sell the barrel to a Scotch company? Cause that happens mm-hmm. as well. Right. Oh, yeah. What, what, what's good you know like i want to know where the company comes in in Mardstown's doing that a handful of other folks are doing that i think that mm-hmm. the hubers are aging in their own wine casks and so you get even more um because you know, i think their blackberry wine finished bourbons are their blackberry wine i think they've got mm-hmm. blackberry right yeah they've blackberry i think so they've got so many it's hard to keep track honestly. yeah they, <laughs> but they also yeah, they got a ton of other stuff and but the thing is you can likely go there and be like hey where'd you get this and they'll be able to talk about it whereas you get into a big brand and they're Good luck. Good luck finding yeah. out where that port cast came from for you know, anybody that, that that's, that's yeah. a major player. Yeah, I mean, you, I think Bardstown is really the it was one of the first to kind of embrace that idea, and you get a middle ground there. Where like the Chateau de Labaud finish, the Armagnac finish one was a great whiskey. It was really well done. It was balanced. You didn't lose the bourbon underneath or the whiskey underneath, I should say. And because uh, I think 
I don't think it was all bourbon, but anyway, you don't you don't lose it underneath, but you also got plenty to finish. You knew that it was Chateau de la Baud. Uh Maybe you didn't know, like, obviously what vintage, maybe they mixed vintages or, you know, maybe it was an intemporal, a different line or whatever, but you knew at least generally where it was coming from. And for a company doing it at the scale at which Bardstown is doing it, that's, I would say that's, that's notable. And that's with that, with the risk of being condescending, that's acceptable um, to, to right. know that. It, and, it's acceptable. We, yeah. we, I mean, we have to give them our permission, right? Like as, as the, the I mean, preeminent whiskey nerds, like you have to ask for our permission to do these things. Of course. But I really like there's, I understand that there's a certain point at which you can't trace them anymore. Having said that, um, I do want to point to Waterford whiskey. Um, and, uh, as of this recording, I, I posted a review of their Gaia organic series, um, a couple of days ago. And, um, there's more plug for them than it is for me, I promise, because their site, if you go scan the terroir code on the bottle and you go to the site, they list not only every single barrel that mm-hmm. was used for the finishing, where the barrel came from, what the fill level was, what the weight was, what the volume was in that barrel, the age of it. I mean, in just mind-blowing level of detail, which says to me that... Others can do that too. Yeah, I mean, the, you think like if, as a as a person who works in a specific industry, right? They they are going to know all of those things because it's metrics they're going to track whenever they want to figure out how many bottles they're going to get from it. Whenever you proof it down, what's coming from where? Like those are all things that they have in a database somewhere. It's mm-hmm. are you capable and or willing, right? So some people probably are willing, but they're they're not capable. They don't know how to connect those dots forward into mm-hmm. making it a, a palatable thing for in consumer to see. But then there's this other group of people that are not willing. They're capable, but they're not willing to do it. And then maybe there's a third subset that they don't know because they're sourcing their whiskey from someone else. And if they don't get it, mm-hmm. they can't share it. Yeah. And and I think there's even a fourth one uh, to put in there who the ones who have the capa- the capability or the knowledge, but not the capacity. I mean, it's incredibly time intensive to put that kind of thing up on a website mm-hmm. or any publication. I mean, it's really not though. I work in software. You can automate this process. You could tie a website into your back end that you're already storing, but it's having the forethought yeah. to end the willingness to do it. It's not necessarily right. resource intensive to make it happen. It's saying, I think that this is something that consumers would want. And realistically, probably less than a percent of the consumers are actually interested in it. It just so happens that we're both in that less than a percent. Right. Of course. Of course. And I I get your point about automation. Um, There's still that, that inertial beginning where it's just putting in that work to set up that process that is then very smooth and easy to, uh, to implement. Um, But yeah, just, I mean, the the guy who started Waterford, Mark Rainier uh, helped revive Brooklady. And when he sold that off for, how many, however many millions of dollars he bought the place on Waterford. And so he had the, the funds to do that. Um, Sagamore is run by the guy who founded Under Armour. You know, there, there are brands really? like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, founded Under Armour. Yep. Uh, oh, shit. Well, there's yeah. An angle. I know. There's, there's several different 
companies like that. And then, um, and the thing is, they're on my list of people I want to talk to. Like they're the people that I want to get an email out to and have a conversation with them sometime in the next year. Yeah, yeah Under Armour. I, maybe I would have found that in my research. Maybe I wouldn't have. But thanks for the tip. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but just the tip. And the, um, <laughs> you know, if that's all you get, it's all you get, man. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, the. So the finishing is is a big thing, and I think um, hell today I just tried the new Davies County lightly toasted. I saw that. Yeah. What was? And so, uh, I mean, I'm no, I'm not gonna ask because you've likely got a review coming out, but it looks interesting. And, and Davies County was one that I talked about recently, just because talking about you know, like French oak and what its impact is on on whiskey, right? Like because. Mm-hmm we don't have a great understanding in North America of what French Oak does because we don't do a ton of things with French Oak and Davies County is probably the most approachable way to understand that because you can get their standard offering and their French Oak finish for both of the bottles for under 80 bucks. And you might be able Mm -hmm. to have an understanding like this is the base distillate and it's not a one-to-one. I get that, but it's as close as you're going to get aside from trying to, you know, get a cask strength makers and a cask strength makers 46. And then, okay, now I know what a French stave does. But now you're different mm-hmm. between staves and barrels. Anyways, I like what Davies County does. Yeah. I mean, you know, from the, uh, from the quote unquote advent calendar that, uh, we did, I did that one makers mark pick that was all the, t- all 10 French Mendian staves. Uh, just, and I was like, how else are you going to taste what that's going to do to your whiskey if all 10 are that stave? Um, I'm, I mean, I'm happy to share with this. This is the first Davies County that I've tried. Mm-hmm. I've I've always seen them. They're in my stores. I just haven't pulled the trigger on them for some reason. Yep. Well, I didn't because every time out. you go in, there's something else on the shelf. You're like, I need to grab yeah. that. And that's yeah. that's that's where and that's why you know whenever I was talking about it, that is why it is the most approachable because it's largely there. Like it is, mm-hmm. like, you're not you're gonna have a hard time not finding it. Mm-hmm. And you can do the exploration for cheap, but it's also mm-hmm. one that I have the French oak, but I don't have the standard finish because I'm buying other stuff every time I go into the liquor store. Like I'm like, oh, I'm going to go in and yeah. I'm going to get this other Davies County. And then I walk in and they're like, oh, hey, we got the new Elijah Craig barrel proof. We got mm-hmm. the Angel's Envy barrel proof. We got the, uh, sorry, not Angel's Envy barrel proof, the Larceny oh, barrel Larceny. proof. That's what I was trying to yeah. say. Larceny, Larceny. Angel's Envy, Envy's, um, I cider, you know, like I saw that one the last time I was in the store and I didn't mm-hmm. even ask. I didn't, I didn't even ask because I'm not willing to, to pay too much. Yeah. Yeah. So th- there's a question. What do you think about retailers that are charging more than MSRP, but maybe up to or slightly less than secondary? Ooh, Ooh that's a rough one. I, I've grown to be okay with it. So what is your justification for it? And I'll, I'll preface with, I have my justification for it because I'm in the same place as you, but I want to hear what yours is. I have a feeling we're going to be pretty similar because we're both very practical people when it comes down to it. And that's really what it com- what it is. It's that it's, and putting aside, you know, control states, we're talking like free market yep. state. Um, if you're, a store owner and you know that a bottle will fetch a certain amount of money. You have zero incentive, particularly nowadays, you have zero incentive to not sell it at that price. Mm -hmm. Um, 
if you're a store owner who knows the secondary market, same thing. You know, that's probably how you're figuring out how much the market will bear. And, you know, I, I, we can bitch and moan all we want about not being able to find Stag Jr. at 60 bucks. You know, it starts at 150, maybe 200 or the bookers being MSRP of 100 and they're selling it at 125, 150. But the reality is we drove it there. You know, we showed on secondary markets or friends or wherever you want to say, we showed that we were willing to pay that. And ultimately, it's our fault as consumers, as much as it is their right as uh, sellers, as retailers, to charge that. Mm -hmm. And... You know, I, I used to be more active on secondary. I'm pretty much off of it at this point, except for samples of things that I can't get. Um, but that's that's just the reality. I think about what I've paid for certain bottles and it's insane things I should never have paid that much for. Um, and things that I think I got on a steal. Like I remember very recently when Elijah Craig Browproof, the old labels were maybe 200, 250 a piece. Now they're 500 mm -hmm. for the most recent one. Um, which is insane by itself, but I can't fault a store owner in a free market for selling a product for what we have shown we're willing to pay for it. Mm -hmm. Well, that's really so, someone has shown what they're willing to pay for it. And this is uh, mine, mine is, is related to that, but it's slightly off of it. Is the first part is I, I did some just basic research a couple months ago of you know like has inflation over the last 20 years impacted the price of whiskey the same way it impacted the price of other consumer goods and it largely mm -hmm. hasn't you know whiskey has not inflated at the rate that other things have until the last year or so mm -hmm. um but prior to that it stayed stagnant it had moderate gains but it did not match the rest of consumer products inflation but as a store owner you know the secondary market exists, and unless you are absolutely certain of who's going to buy that, you know, like I have a local store that has absolutely no problem selling things to me at near retail because they know two things. Number one, it's never going to the secondary. It's always going to get opened, and maybe slightly more self-serving for them is that I'm going to rip the plastic off, and they're going to get a pour of it before I walk out the door because mm -hmm. I appreciate the opportunity to purchase it at that level, and I want to ensure, like, this is not going to secondary. You know, the, the, they just did an Eagle Rare store pick, which they're slow rolling that out because people will try to flip that for another 40 bucks or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. and I picked up a second one because a part of a giveaway, which I still need to mail that out. It's a good thing Bill's not still here. It's supposed to go to him. <laughs> um, it's supposed to be not mailed. I wouldn't mail it. That would be illegal. I'm going to deliver it to him using a courier of, of some type. Um, mm -hmm. but anyways, so they have a choice of, selling it to anybody off the street and knowing that that person is going to go out and gain another 200% off that bottle. The realistic mm -hmm. point of that is that that extra 200% on that single bottle is not going to make a difference for them because most of their money is going to come elsewhere. Mm -hmm. But it is someone is benefiting from their just maintaining to sell it at a retail value. If they know the person's not going to flip it, they're likely more likely to sell it. At a retail price, someone who's going mm -hmm. to just genuinely, at least most of the local stores in this area, their big concern is like, what's the person going to do? Like, what are they going to do with this bottle whenever they walk out the door? 
Mm-hmm. Um, and what would you do? Like if it was your money tied up and you know, I sold a bottle for $60 that could be sold for $2,000. Yep. For my business, it doesn't make a big difference. But for my, hey, I want to go on vacation, it makes a big difference, right? Because if your total revenue is a hundred thousand dollars and you made an extra thousand, one percent, whoopity do, you know. Mm-hmm. But it can make a big difference. So I, I, I'm I'm there, and they're going to charge what they want to charge, and I can either participate mm-hmm. or not. Yeah, and so. we can we can again we ambition moan all we want, but when the day that last year that they announced that George C. Stagg wasn't coming out in 2021, every bottle of Stagg in the New York City area and probably across the country doubled, not and, only tripled. doubled, in, doubled and tripled in price and was bought. Yep. Is the other thing. Like, well, you know, one side upped the ante and the other one matched them right away. And yep. if, if people, it's unrealistic to expect that over the course of I don't know how many people that no one would do that. Mm-hmm. But, if we as bourbon drinking community had reacted by saying, okay, it's not coming out this year. We assume they're coming out next year. Um, you know, what effect does that have? Does like that, that, that has no effect on previous bottles. It doesn't make them more drinkable. It doesn't make them better or worse. It's it's perceived perceived makes them more valuable. It's right. It makes them more scarcity. valuable. We, we have a, we have a local restaurant in town. That we have a Dairy Queen in our town that mm-hmm. is only open between uh, like March the first and Halloween. Mm-hmm. On March the first and on Halloween, they probably make enough revenue to be in the black for the rest of the year mm-hmm. because they create a scarcity problem. And they're doing it because it's still a walk up location with no drive through, and so being out in the parking lot when it's snowy or icy or rainy and cold. Nobody's interested in doing that. It's not going to be a high volume at that point in time. They could update the restaurant. They could make it, you know, something where people could come and go, but there's no need to because they can create a scarcity problem. They can generate significant revenue. You know, the nefarious side of me says Buffalo Trace is just seeing what the market can bear. They're, they're exploring things. Um, Mm -hmm. but what benefit did they actually see from it? Like that, that's the, the second, the side of it. Like what, what benefit did they see? This one just came to mind. I hadn't thought of this before, um, but I guess it must have been triggered. Aside from everything else that goes along with them not putting that product out, it creates in every consumer's mind the idea that this year could be the last mm-hmm. or that this year it's there, but next year it won't be. And, you know, they'll skip. So you got to buy this year. Um, so that goes to your point a about problem what's selling everything. They've never had a problem selling everything for the last five years, right? So they're not increasing their sales volume because they sell out of any of the B-Tacs. You know, there was a point in time where you couldn't find Buffalo Trace in this part of the state, just mm-hmm. the standard offering Buffalo Trace. And it's still the case in a lot of other places. And so what's the real benefit? Like if you were trying to be nefarious and say, we're going to hold back George T. Stagg this year, what are you trying to do? So have I told you my conspiracy theory on that? I want to hear it. Let's go. All right. Um, I may have told it elsewhere, so apologies if I'm being redundant. But Not the 12 um, people that are listening to this. Fair enough. My conspiracy theory on it was that it simply wasn't good. Like what if we take them at their face value 
Uh, take them That's back what they value. said, though. That's largely yeah. what they said is it just wasn't right. appropriate and we weren't going to put it out. Right. So let's take them at face value and say it wasn't good enough to meet the George T. SAG standards. Mm-hmm. This is arguably – put aside Pappy because it's it's by Buffalo Trace, but it's it's separate. Different thing. Different thing. This is arguably their flagship brand, the bottle upon which every other bottle is measured. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would honestly include Weller in that. I think Weller, again, could be its own line, but as part of the BTAC collection, like Stag is the leader. It's, it feels like it's the king of that. Exactly. It's the king of it. Yeah. So let's take him at face value and say it wasn't good enough to those standards. This is your flagship product that you know mm-hmm. is going to sell out immediately. You know you're going to age. It doesn't have to be great years. to sell it out. It doesn't have to be doesn't, great to sell it out. It happens doesn't. with old first or birthday bourbon, bourbon every every other every five years, whatever, or yep. even the uh, Elijah Craig barrel proofs. Yeah, they're not great. They're still having no problem passing them. Right. So let's assume that it was so bad for some reason. Now mm-hmm. this is your flagship product, and you're a multi probably billion, but let's say multi multi million dollar distillery. Um, owned by a multi-billion dollar company. Do you really think that they went 15 years without tasting that whiskey? That they weren't tasting that thing at minimum, let's say every year, every six months, every three months, to make sure that it was on track, that it wasn't going bad, there was no mustiness or anything? It's got to be a yearly taste up till the last Mm -hmm. three years, and it's probably every six months. It's got to be on a six-month cycle. So they knew it was coming Mm -hmm. or had, had a good idea it was coming. Right. And you know, we've talked, we both talked to enough distillers and producers. You know, when a barrel or a batch is just not salvageable. This was the first or last year was the first year where it would have been Harlan's distill, distillate in George mm-hmm. T. Stag and not Gary Gayhart's. Um, and let's say it wasn't, it wasn't good. No one's kicking Harlan out. Mm hmm. He doesn't need the job. His wife makes more money than he ever will. Um, again, not a criticism. It's just facts. You know, he lives on the Buffalo Trace property in the famous house that's on the fields there. Um, he's very reticent and um, uh, withdrawn on, on interviews. He doesn't speak a lot. He doesn't have to. He's not on a lot of shows. He doesn't have to mm-hmm. be. Um, cause as you said, it's going to sell. If no one knows his name, it's going to sell. But let's say this batch was really that bad and you're Mark Brown and you're having to decide, do we put out a product that we know is still going to sell, still going to sell out, still going to go for whatever on secondary prices and get our name out there with whatever, win every award, despite how good or bad it is. But people will know that this was a subpar batch. And what if you are now looking at the next year's batches and worrying that they're also going to be bad? Do you continue to put out the good ones? Mm-hmm. Or sorry, do you continue to put out the bad ones, figuring, well, they'll buy them anyway and just, you know, screw, screw the reputation. They're going to say it's stag. It's always good anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, or do you really start looking through and worrying? Because remember, at the same exact time, you have stag junior dropping the junior. Right. And from a um from a coding standpoint, a UPC code standpoint, that is really confusing to have stag and stag. Mm-hmm. You know? Why would you do and that? Why would, why would you, you do go that? through the effort just to remove a simple junior 
from mm-hmm. the bottle. Yep. The idea being that the junior has always just been simply a younger product, a little more raw power as opposed to mature 15 plus age. I think it went up to 18 at one in one year. But what's what's the um, what's the MSRP on George T. Stag versus Stag Junior? MSRP uh, on Stag Junior is sixty bucks, right? And I think it's up to sixty five. Sixty five. Yeah, sixty seventy bucks. Um, MSRP on George T. Stag is ninety nine still. Right. So, but what we see in the market is that Stag Junior, while you can go with that, oh, we're trying to take the Junior away because it's not a Junior; it's its own product. Mm-hmm. The market indicates via secondary that it will go for significantly more than what the MSRP on George T. Stag is. Like it will go for more than the MSRP. Now it won't go for the secondary of George T. Stag, but that also mm-hmm. I think has a lot more to do with scarcity because there's far less George T. Stag than there is a Stag Junior, right? Because Stag Junior is a couple three mm-hmm. batches a year. Yep. But uh, on the other hand, though, I mean, the I understand your point about the Stag Junior being its own product, but by taking the Junior away, I think you hurt that cause more than you help it because then yeah, you so have that's the like, it, said, yeah what what's the real reason you're taking the junior away because the junior's mm-hmm. already punching above its weight without a doubt right. it's punching above its weight if you're saying mm-hmm. oh well, the people are just saying it's a junior product no it's it's mm-hmm. no one's having mm-hmm. that conversation in the real world like that's not it that is marketing mm-hmm. speak like i i'm all forced marketing speak there's somebody out there that's got to craft a product story and i love that person because that is a tough job to do mm-hmm. But taking away the junior because it's seen as an inferior product is just a crock of shit. There's something else that you're trying to do here. And right. while you were talking, I sort of thought about this thing. And I think depending upon what happens this year mm-hmm. may indicate on whether you're right or I'm right or neither of us are right. Um, it may be, have just been a shitty batch. Like that, the, the aging may have gone south because of any number of conditions. That's what happens with whiskey sometimes. Mm-hmm. But we're also indicating that do we really think that there are certain barrels that are identified as these are the barrels of George T. Stag and they're not it, we're not going to make it. Because you get Buffalo Trace who has millions of barrels and they couldn't yeah. find enough to put together a George mm-hmm. T. Stag offering. Mm-hmm. My mm-hmm. wonder is, you know, you, you mentioned this is Harlan Wheatley's first distillate, right? Mm-hmm. Um, is it possible that we'll see, well... The Eagle Rare is not going to be ready this year. And next year, it's going to be the Handy. And the year after that, it's going to be the Sazerac. And then five to seven years from now, we see this line of hyper-aged Harlan Wheatley's first batches at a significant premium where they've harvested one brand a year for five years to create this other line that didn't exist before. I could see that. I mean, let's take another twist down the rabbit hole here. Um, and let's say the batch was fine. Mm-hmm. Um, there's nothing wrong with it. But alongside that, they're dropping the junior from stag, step from stag junior, and they're making it, uh, I think they're still going to try to make it a first three... class citizen. They're trying to make it, right. a, you know, yeah, peer. They're, ele- they're elevating it above the standard offerings and, it's Will it elevate if it's still punching in the same ring that Stag Senior is in? Right. Because an easy counter argument to the the batch wasn't good, maybe because it was Harlan's first batch, is that you know the Thomas Handys have been fine. I, it's actually my favorite of the B tax, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, 
the Weller, W.L. Weller hasn't had a bad year, as far as I know. Not one that people are like, you know, saying anything about. Right. Um, I'm not a fan of the size 18 or the Eagle Bear 17, so I can't really speak to those. But the the point being that if the other ones are good, particularly, you know, Weller, the Weller is usually around 12 years old. So younger than the stack. Mm-hmm. Um, the Handy is six years old, six to seven. So it's already gone and, through the Wheatley years. Yes, exactly. So that stuff is still good across both bourbon and rye, wheat mm-hmm. bourbon and rye. The Stag Juniors have mostly been positively received. Mm-hmm. You know, you always have someone who doesn't like a batch, but in the, for the most part, they've been. That's with batches. Like that, that's, you know, you're, you're going to have your, your proponents and your opponents exactly. to everything. Right. That's just going to happen. Um, so I think what's more likely is that they're, they're temporarily in the consumer's mind. They're combining the UPCs. They're combining the lines. Um, and are going to rotate out the, what we think of as George T. Stag for the previous Stag Junior produced at a younger age. It's got more power, more, um, yeah, I'll just leave it at more power. Um, I've tasted all of them. I mean, those early ones were like breathing fire. They were, they were really good, but they were mm-hmm. like gasoline fires. And that way it's a, it's much cheaper. It's cheaper for them to produce a product that effectively satiates the same need for a high proof ride bourbon. Um, maybe they'll age state it. They've never age stated stag junior, but they usually say it's around 10 to 12 years old because it's on the process to being stag. You know, make it a lower age statement so they can also replenish it faster. Knowing that a 10 to 12 year old is going to sell just as much. You raise that MSRP 20 bucks or 30 bucks to match what George T. Stagg is. Mm-hmm. And suddenly you've got basically the same product at the same MSRP that's cheaper to produce, takes less time and is just as sought after. Mm-hmm. And all the meanwhile, the others products in the BTAC line remain what they are. They're not any older. They're the same age or younger. Um, the Saz and the Eagle Rare, I mean, I honestly don't really get the point of those two products, to be mm-hmm. perfectly honest. Uh, but they're they're doing the store picks of the Eagle Rare at, at 10 years. And it's yeah. age state at 10 years. And it sells just fine at 10 yeah. years and 101 proof. Underproof? I can tell you in a second, but it's, yeah. it's over there. It's, it's, it's one or the other. It's yeah. And they finally brought the 10 years back to the front of the label and everybody feels mm-hmm. very happy about it now. Exactly. But really like from our stamp, from a general consumer standpoint, who gives a fuck? They don't care. It's people like us who care who are thinking, okay, Elijah Craig pulled the same crap when they had the 12 year on the front of the bottle, then they moved it right. to the back, then they removed it. So, I think while I love the first conspiracy theory that it was just bad and, you know, Harlem made a bad batch or something, I think it's more likely that we're going to see over the next two to four years a replacement of George T. Stagg as we know it with a mm-hmm. Stagg product that's somewhere in between Stagg Jr. and GTS, but still on the BTEC collection. But if you're going to go that route, why even bother with moving, removing the junior from it? If you're going to go into an intermediary v- version, right? Mm-hmm. 
Like, why even bother? Because right now the label that, that exists is catered to the bottle that Stag Jr. lives in. But if you're going to go from, you know, George T. Stag and Stag Jr. to some other thing, I would think you would want to rebrand the bottle entirely and the label entirely. And maybe you are just saying Stag only at that point, but it's completely new. But what if it's not, I mean, I'm kind of seeing as you don't have to, you don't have to rebrand at all. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what they would think of too, is that if you're replacing George T. Stag with Stag only, with just Stag on the front, okay. both products still have the horns embossed in white. One's got a sticker label instead of it being embossed, but sticker labels are cheaper than embossing. Um, one word instead of three or instead of two in an initial. It's not age stated anyway on the, on the bottles. It's age stated only in the letters and the stuff on the website. Bottle doesn't have an age statement on it. And I think it, it creates the confusion, purposeful mm-hmm. confusion to say there's no difference. And if you get enough people saying there's no difference, even though there are those of us who know that there is, then you get to a point where someone just sees stag and is immediately going to pay 600 bucks instead of 200. Right. Well, but the thing is though, for, for the bulk of the places where they make money is, is not the people that are buying the stags and the stag juniors and all that. Like, they're making their money off Buffalo Trace. They're making their money off of, you know, Wheatley vodka or any other thing, right? Because we're still only mm-hmm. talking about small volumes of product over the year. At a higher price given, but it's just still a small volume of product. My thought is if they remove George T. Stagg from the BTAC lineup entirely, that will be perceived by a lot of the whiskey nerds as the harbinger of doom. Like this is the beginning of the end because they're already starting to jettison BTAC bottles. We're saying, well, we're not going to do this BTAC bottle. That's it. The, the bourbon boom is over. It's on its way out because – the, some of the staples, you know, BTAC is a staple of whiskey nerddom, period. Mm-hmm. Pappies, BTACs, your, you know, some of your Parkers, some, you know, there, there's certain things, your Fitzes that just, you're a whiskey nerd. And, you know, we all talk about, eh, I don't really care about it. But if somebody walked up and said, Hey, I've got a, you know, 23 year old, uh, Pappy that I'll give you for mm-hmm. retail, done, done and done. No problem. I'm not going to pay secondary for it, but I would do it, right? But also, I'm not actively searching for that because, you know, whatever else. But if that went away, mm-hmm. I'd start to like, oh, what's happening here? If, if 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 the staples of the segment are gone, that doesn't bode well for the future, in my mind, immediately. Now, I, I, we also know that there's a ton of other things out there, and they're trying to do other different, weirder, uniquer, whatever things. I don't know. I, I think removing us, if you remove Sazerac or you remove Eagle Rare, you're probably okay because people aren't looking at that. Handy, Weller. I don't think you can pull those out of the BTAC lineup without some, some pearl clutching. I mean, reverse the time on that though. I mean, the BTAC line has not always existed as it was. Mm-hmm. Started as Stag only. And then the others have been built up since then. Exactly. So it's the it's the yeah. forefather. It is the godfather of BTAC, so to speak, right? Yep. Um, but and now we're saying the godfather's dead. But again, think about 
you you were right in saying earlier, you know, we have, to, we really, you and I and the people like us have to think about this as not the people that we are, <laughs> mm-hmm. as the everyday consumer. The everyday consumer is, as you said, they're going to buy what Buffalo Trace makes their money on. The Buffalo Trace, the Eagle Rare 10, the stuff that's on the shelves, Weepy Vodka. Um, George T. Stagg, as it stands now, is probably a loss leader for them. Given how much time it, me, they, 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 I, I don't know if it's a loss leader. They've got to break even on these things. They, I, I feel like they're breaking even because at the end of the day, they're still storing in a warehouse. They're paying taxes on it, but they're likely just breaking even. So loss leader, maybe not, but they're not making a ton of, if any money at MSRP on these. And that kind of goes back to this concept of, you know, inflation has not met and, you know, it, if you're not paying $10 a year, you're probably nowhere near what it's valued and it's probably higher than $10. You know, we, we've had this idea of $10 a year for a long time. It's probably 15 or $20 a year. Probably. And yeah, Buffalo Trace, once you subtract whatever the distributor is going to take, the retailer cut, you know, maybe let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Let's say they're making 60, 65 bucks on a $100 bottle. I mean, I'm sure we can find those numbers out from someone willing mm-hmm. to rat them out, but, right. um, you know, the point is though that you're, they're not, they're, if you want to, if you don't want to say they're a loss leader, they're not making money on it. No. And, but I sometimes you do a thing to just be in the market with a name, right? There, it's, mm-hmm. this is, I work yeah. in a particular industry where the word sustainability means something, right? We got to be mm-hmm. sustainable from an environmental perspective. But the reality is you just need to be able to say the word. You put out a tool to try to be in that realm and it makes you know it costs you money, but you do it so you can say the thing. And that's what BTAC largely is. Like Buffalo Trace can lay their claim on we are we are the big swinging dicks of bourbon because we have BTAC, we have Pappy, and we have the EH Taylors. Mm-hmm. We have it. We have the thing everybody wants. We have the Blantons, we have all the things. You start removing those, then where is your authority in the marketplace? So you eat a half a million or a million dollars a year if you have to, but I don't think you're doing that. I think you're breaking even, but you do it anyways, just for market segment, just to say you are. I mean, I get that argument because I I think of, I think of like the restaurants in Times Square. That's a good comparison. There's an Olive Garden in the main building in Times Square that is in the back of every photo that you take at TKTS at the tickets booth for Broadway. It's right behind those big stairs and it's a massive restaurant. It's a two floor, huge restaurant. They are still um, wildly in the red, but that yeah. location is not meant to make money. It's to be, it is product placement. It's, it's product placements, getting eyes placement. on it. And then you, they can, you're making they make up your the money, money every back other on store. that. You're making your money yeah. back just in sheer advertising value. They just in sheer exactly. marketing power. And, and that's, that's what it is. Like you, you are the, the bully in the room because you are the leader in B tax and EH Taylor's and Pappy's and all the things. And when you're not the leader anymore, you know, when, when you decide to stop doing that because you're going to grow beyond it or whatever it is you're doing. Mm-hmm. Who's going to come in next? You know, is Heaven Hill going to seize the claim? Is is it going to be somebody else? And I don't think they're ready to give that up. I don't think that they're going to, for a half a million dollars, they wouldn't give up that position. For 
I would challenge for probably $5 million. I wouldn't give up the leader position. To your point, though, I mean, who is ready to take the mantle? Ready to or willing to? Both. I mean, there, there are plenty. I'll take that back. There are plenty of companies willing to. Mm-hmm. But how many Capability isn't there? Yeah. Like Jack Daniels can come in with their Koi Hill mm-hmm. and say, we got the new powerhouse Tennessee whiskey slash bourbon in town. But that's not sustainable because you can only pull them from one part of the warehouse. Uh, Heaven Hill could do the same thing with uh, particular batches of Elijah Craig barrel proof or, or do or put more volume out of William Heaven Hill. And that could take its place. You know, Wild Turkey's not really in the mix. Four Rose is not really in the mix for this. No. You're only talking about the guys who are doing high proof. Heaven Hill. I, th- I think Heaven Hill is your only option at that point, realistically. Right. If we're talking five to seven years from now, maybe we're having a conversation about Wilderness Trail or, you know, Bardstown. Maybe they're a yeah. part of that conversation at that point, but they're maybe. still too yeah. young to try to take that, that, that mantle right. on. And I think if you, so taking, uh, taking Heaven Hill, I think it's without question, Elijah Craig Bowerproof would be the one that probably would step into that role. They could do William Heaven Hill, maybe, but they would have to, they would have to scale that up so significantly. They're going to have to do fits. They're going to have to do fits because it's a weeder and weeder is what people are after. But if they're not replacing the Weller line, that's the thing. They're replacing Georgie Stack in the scenario. Okay. That's fair. And, and the thing about fits, the old fits has always been too that it's 100 proof bottle and bond. Well, I would, so you're not wrong. So to pre- replace the premier line of a BTAC, they're going to have to lean on Heaven Hill or, or something else. But to replace the, the standard Weller line, they're going to have to lean more into the old fits realm because they've got to push that out to kind of make it work. Mm-hmm. I think, right? So, I mean, they've, they've got the foundation poured to, to do that between Elijah Craig and between Larceny. They've already got people interested in advanced age or proof things. So if they just mm-hmm. say, oh, we've got a 15-year version of this that is incredibly limited, and so it's something else. It's some new name. It's whatever. Um, mm-hmm. They can price condition. You know, part of me also wonders is Buffalo Trace doing this because they've seen what Barstown is able to do with their pricing, right? Like, mm-hmm. I don't know what you spend on the for killing, but let's just take, you know, prime example, um, Matt from ADHD whiskey, his, his blend that he did, mm-hmm. which is not necessarily significantly aged is $180 a bottle. Mm-hmm. They're charging less than a hundred for BTAC line. So they're going to start slowly pulling that out of the market and then bring it back and be like, well, we're going to have to increase the price because it's just the barrels aren't aging the way we want them to. And the, 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 the selection size is going to be smaller. So the price has to go up to justify the line. Or they're going to try to price condition us. Well, the back, I, I wouldn't say the they're wrong. But... No, but the backlash is going to be harder against the heritage brands. I mean, Barthstown's able to do that. Um, Wilderness Trail can do that. I mean, uh... <laughs> Hell, National Barrel Company—it's not even true. It's NDP. They can do the barrel. Can do that, <laughs> you know. Barrel putting out these... like I want to buy Nashville Bur- Barrel. Com- I, I just can't. I just no. can't. I don't trust them enough yet. I, neither do I, and I think there's the same product out there for less. The exact same product out there for less. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, Barrel right now is testing the market with these gold label releases and seeing that the market's going to bear. The but market they're still has... not. They're still not terribly beyond. 
what it probably should be at an advanced age, right? Because we just said mm-hmm. it's probably closer to $15 a year, $15 for, um, every year or more, right? Cause it's $10, mm-hmm. $10 a year right now is what people kind of go off of. It's probably closer mm-hmm. to 15 or 20 is what it should be. And barrel is with that, right? They're staying within that pricing model. They are, they are. But the thing is with barrel and I'll take my own review on this as a prime example. Like I, I reviewed the gold label seagrass, and I said, I loved the gold label seagrass. I thought I loved the gray label, arguably better, but I love the gold label. And I said, I would pay, I don't want to pay 500 for it. I would pay 350, right. maybe 300, somewhere in that range. Mm-hmm. So that's already saying three times what the MSRP is for these other whiskeys. Now, Barrel could, if they just, if they find through market research that the $500 mark is just too much, too high, it's too high. They but are they sitting with, with the thing is are they sitting with with volume on the shelf at five hundred dollars? Because it doesn't appear that they are. I, it doesn't appear that they are either, which means that the market's bearing it right now. But let's say right. the market let let's say hypothetically the market's not bearing it, and they say okay. I don't this think it will for a long. I think it's bearing it right now because you have this glut of people who can't access mm-hmm. the BTAX, the Pappies, the the high end mm-hmm. things. They're just not the volume for them to access it. So their consolation prize is I'll go out and buy this advanced age barrel product or whatever, and then try mm-hmm. to convince all my friends that I'm actually doing better because I'm buying something that's new and unique and different and innovative mm-hmm. and all of these, different, which is brilliant on their part. Like kudos to them. I'm a huge barrel yeah. proponent. There's a ton of barrel that's sitting over here. You can see the Armida bottle right there. Yeah, yeah look, there's they, a handful I've, behind. I've talked, I've talked to them. I've talked to their PR. Yeah. They've got no problem with these kinds of criticisms. They know that that's the reality. They know that they're testing the market right now. So they can play around with their thing. At the same time as they're charging that much for whatever the age of the whiskey is, we as consumers are complaining that Booker's is now a hundred bucks for MSRP, or that Elijah Craig went from sixty-five to seventy-five. Mm-hmm. You know, and because we have a set that, expectation over the last mm-hmm. five to seven years of what it's going to be, exactly. and we're not willing to budge off of that. But people that are new to the market don't have a set expectation. You know, that they, they, they only have a couple of years. So Bardstown, go back to Bardstown, a bourbon company. The mm-hmm. set expectation when Pfeiffer Pabot first came out was $120, $140 a bottle. Now it's up to $180. Um, mm-hmm. But it's not years and years. It's only a couple of releases that were mm-hmm. at that price range. And they're like, eh, no, we got to price up. We got to price up. We got to price up. Mm-hmm. It's our fault. Like we're not accepting of the price changes that should mm-hmm. exist, right? Mm-hmm. Whether you like Booker's or not, it shouldn't be $60. It shouldn't be. Because there are standard shelf offerings every day that are $60. Right. It should be more than that. But as soon as we're like, oh, we're up to 75 then everybody's like, well, screw these guys. You know? Yeah. But the, let, let's, let's stay with the Booker's example. Like, we know Perry has stopped buying Booker's. I skipped batch one this year. Still none left on the shelves. It's not like we're making yeah. some protest non-buy that is going to we're not I making an impact by not buying not someone impact. else is going to buy it exactly and to your point about people different the differences between guys like us people like us i should say and the um market as a whole or new entrance to the market if you go back to like they know the name bookers if we don't buy it 
new entrants to the market are going to buy the bookers because they've heard the name. And they're like, oh, with bookers, it must be good. A hundred bucks? All right. It's not too bad. Well, and it's not even new spec. entries to the market. It's it's the market that we are creating with the things that we talk about, right? Mm-hmm. Is because you've got – we're the whiskey nerds, right? And then there are other new whiskey nerds that are coming into it all the time, but they're also – have been around for a while. You've been around for three or four years and you've never seen a Booker's. And now we're just saying, eh, this year's Booker's is not great, but this is the first time they've seen one on the shelf because some people like us are starting to pass on it. They're going to snap it up. It's mm-hmm. their first chance to get a Booker's. But then there's this other group of like whiskey bros, right? Mm-hmm. They're not at the nerd level. They're high level consuming. And I am not insulting by any means. I don't want to sound this way, but like, they're, they're consuming explicitly things like bourbon junkies. And I love those guys. I've, I've met Dan and Sean. I've spent time with them, you know, face to face. I was going to go to Michigan this weekend and, and, and hang out with them, but I've got to go to business trip or whatever. They're great guys, but there's a ton of whiskey bros that hang out around them and whatever they say is the gospel. And so now I know I got to have bookers all the time, you know, because mm-hmm. this particular broy type content is going to put me there, whether I actually enjoy it or not, whether I ever even open it or not. They're going to sell because there's a high enough volume of the whiskey bros or the whiskey collectors or whatever that are just going to have them unopened on their shelf. So it's always going to go. Mm-hmm. So we won't have a fair indication of what bookers should or should not be doing because it always sells. But then the same thing is going to apply to any stag branded product mm-hmm. that's going to come out. If they pull it off the market and say, we've basically put an ultimatum to bourbon drinkers and say, look, we've either got to pull it and wait for other batches to mature and or, frankly, because it could be both, mm-hmm. and or we've got to triple MSRP to break Just, even on this bottle. They won't, have, they won't have a problem. Even if they never said we have to triple to, to break even, we just have to triple the price point, it'll still sell because mm-hmm. it's selling at that price every day right now. So that's exactly. what leads me towards the the creating the 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 lack of product in the market is about price conditioning in the future. Like we're going to increase the price on people because it probably should be. There's no reason mm-hmm. it should be $99 and I don't know if you've ever seen it at $99 in a store in the last 5 years cuz I know I haven't. If it's not oh being God. priced at that why are they going back to this conversation we had about store retailers? Mm-hmm. retailers is why are they selling it at $99 for me to flip it for a thousand dollars? They're going to sell it for higher. Why is Buffalo trace selling it to the store at $59 for the retailer to sell it for $99 when they could be selling it for 10 times that amount easily. Like why would they keep doing that? Um, I, I don't think they jettison the product line. I think they increase the price on it. That's, I mean, that's fair. And I, I agree with that line of thinking. I still come back to, they can do that and they can accomplish that change while still eventually putting out a product that's closer to what we think of as Stag Junior than George T. Stag. Mm-hmm. Because you can still argue that a Stag Junior like product should still be probably doubled its MSRP right, right now. It will still get bought. They'll still, whatever bottles out there of BTAC or Pappy will still get bought. If, you know, I appreciate kind of mock and appreciate the Van Winkle saying like Pappy is worth what the MSRP is. It's not worth the secondary pricing. Right. Well, yeah, but, but no, like 
the truth is that may be what you think, but it's not reality. And that's, if that's, you, that, that is exactly what they think, but that's not what yeah. the market indicates. Right. And if someone, I understand that there are people, people who are getting Pappy and getting BTAC and look, I won a WO Weller at retail. Mm-hmm. One of the best days of my life, but I, but I've, I've, that wish that genie is gone at this point yeah. um, for the rest of my life. I get that there are people who are getting these products at retail through whether it's lotteries or whatever it's control states. So it's rare. Get a it's rare, it's, but it, it's rare. It's possible. It is possible. It's rare. It's possible, but it's rare. And then, and then you're I mean, left with it. You're a whiskey nerd. So you want to taste it. But if you're mm-hmm. not a complete whiskey nerd, like we are, then you start looking at, okay, I bought this at retail. How much could I sell it for? And that money means something completely different to you than it does the retailer or to the distiller. It does. Point. It does. But also to, I, but also think about, uh, the names like Pappy and Stag and BTAC are reaching a much broader audience than mm-hmm. whiskey drinkers. Like Absolutely. when, when that, when that announcement came out last year, um, I got emailed by probably four to five members of my family who don't drink. <laughs> they just yeah. knew I was inter- They knew what I was doing. They thought, "Oh wow, he must not have seen this." Of course, I'd seen it, but you know, <laughs> I knew about this weeks like, ago, yeah. right? Like I got the notification at three a.m. that morning that the announcement was coming out four hours later. I knew, mm-hmm. but the point being that it's and en- those names have bookers. Same thing. Those names have entered the larger zeitgeist beyond our own community. There are going to be people who have nothing to do with whiskey, who don't drink, who don't give a shit what brand it is you know mm-hmm. who are going to search out and buy the pappy or the van winkle 10 12 whatever they can find at whatever price they can find for their boss as a present because it's a nice thing they don't care what the msrp is they don't care if it's paying the 69.99 for the 10 year or if they're paying the 300 for the 10 year they're going to buy it because it says pappy on the front and their boss is going to appreciate it they don't give a shit that it's whiskey it's or a it's watch clout. It, it's right. clout, plain and simple yeah, it's not about the product, it, or it's not about what the actual thing is. It's it could be a whiskey, it could be a watch, it could be a car for all we know. Because some of these whiskeys go for car prices. Yeah, you know, it's well, not and clout about becomes that scary. Anymore. Even like these clout bottles yeah. become really scary because you know at, at a very very much more like reduced level. Last year, whenever um, Bell Mead did their honey release, right, they have a limited mm-hmm. selection there. You, you, you get in a lottery. I won my opportunity to get it. I'm like, heck yeah. I went and you know, pick up my bottle, and then it's like I don't want to open it. Mm-hmm. My immediate reaction, I don't want to open it because I'm afraid that it is not worth what I paid. It is not worth the clout that it carries with it. Mm-hmm. And I would challenge it's not worth the money that I paid for. It, it was damn good. I was very impressed with it, but it is not worth the money I paid. It's not worth the clout that was revolved around it, but for someone it might be. And then, so then I tried to make sure I shared it. That was, you know, brought that to Timbit weekend, left there mm-hmm. and make sure people finish it off. Um, there are certain things that are like that. Like they become scary for whiskey nerds because what if it's just not good? Mm-hmm. And we're burdened with the knowledge of even if it, even if it is that good, like when I won that Weller at, retail i knew immediately that if i went to a secondary i could sell it for 1200 exactly easy and then it went higher mm-hmm. and at that point it's you're getting into a territory where even if it's the best thing you've ever had in your life is it worth that much more to keep it or sell it and you I mean, can't if it's the best thing you've ever you know, had in your life it's worth keeping 
but the statistical odds are that it's not. It's not right. going to be, be the best thing that you've ever had in your life. And mm-hmm. now you could flip that on secondary for the financial value of a trip to Kentucky for a handful of days. Mm-hmm. And which is more you, meaningful, that bottle or the trip? Right, where you get any right. number of other bottles that may not may also not be the best thing you've ever had in your life, but will be experiential, will be mm-hmm. have some more meaning to them. And we're burdened with that knowledge of secondary markets of what things burden. are really worth. It's a I tough know. burden. It is, but it it does become an issue when you start questioning. Like we know that stack can go for more, and that's really the crux of this entire argument is that the MSRPs for BTAC line for stag for all of these things from Buffalo trace should have doubled or tripled tripled. Tri- I would say years ago. tripled or quadrupled at this point, right? right. Where we Here's- are in the boom, in the market, in the, mm-hmm. e- even just factoring standard inflation over the last mm-hmm. 10 years, they have not increased where they should have. Right. And that should have happened in like 2016, 2017, you know? We might not see the secondary market where it is right now if they had it. Cause when your margins get lower, do you want to take the risk? Cause this is where, this is where I find myself thinking about this all the time. And it's one of those places where you like, you kick yourself. Like it's like, Oh, you know, if I'd have known what Bitcoin was going to do, I would have put all my money in Bitcoin, you know, of course, 15 years ago, whatever. But when just plain well or 12 year went from on the shelf at like $35. To a $65 secondary market, and you could still find it every day. We're talking about the old style bottles at $65 on a secondary market. I was like, I'm not going to buy that. Price is going to come down. No, I'm not going to buy any of that. If I'd have taken every bit of my 401k and bought every bottle at $65, I'd be retired right now. Because it's now, what, $500, $400, whatever? Mm-hmm. Like, it's just... Yep. It's bananas. Yep. And secondary markets are, from what I've heard, and I'm honestly saying that I'm not being facetious, um, they're slowing down. Yes. So are they slowing down because there's a lack of of people wanting it or is it because people are becoming concerned about an impending recession? uh, I think they're definitely getting pinched in how much discretionary income they have. Um, there's also, I I think it's a market correction, just like any 10 to 20% correction the stock market would have. Um, because it's, again, I'm going off of hearsay at this point, but it's fallen or it's stopped rather and fallen a bit. Yep. But they're not, it's not like you're going back to 2017, 2018 prices. No. And and I've heard it stopped slash fall a slight bit amount, slight bit as well. And the initial version of that for me was we hit this weird point in everyone's life. Like we're going to talk about 2020 and 2021 for the next 40 years, how they Mm -hmm. impacted people. But we hit this point where people had a ton more discretionary income, whether it was because they got some sort of a, a COVID payment or they just weren't going out to eat lunch, spending money on gas, doing mm-hmm. all these, going on vacations. So we had all this extra money. And that's where largely most of this behind me came from. It was like, eh, I'm not spending money on going out to eat yep. anymore. I'm just going to buy bottles to have and try and you know kind of expand my palate and learn more things mm-hmm. and do whatever else. Now those people are able to go on vacation again. They, you know, they, mm-hmm. their, their kids are able to go to recitals and go to Disney and do all these other things. And so 
it's like, eh, you know, the, the market is going to cool down a little bit from that. But mm-hmm. I think we're hitting a second wave of people that are like, should I be spending $500 on a bottle of whiskey if we're going to see gas prices stay at $5 a gallon or if the cost of groceries are going to go up by 25%? Like are these things – are mm-hmm. is that going to be the death of the bourbon boom is a, a recession scare and or a recession? I mean, certainly could be these, the larger companies for sure. And most of the smaller ones who want to grow are still, they're still expanding. They're still mm-hmm. pumping out more and more. I mean, what's the, uh, what's the one that's building a new, I think Sazerac is building like a 400 million compound in Indiana. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like you don't put that kind of money in if you give a shit about a recession. Well, I mean, recessions are short term. I mean, largely a depression is long term, but recessions are short term. Companies yeah. are smart enough to recognize that. And so they don't mm-hmm. see a whiskey boom stopping anytime soon. Mm-hmm. But we're talking about a different scale of secondary markets. Maybe the secondary markets die off, but whiskey is still being consumed at a high level. People are still willing to buy the bottles at MSRP. They're just not willing to spend 10 times in MSRP to buy things anymore. Right. So maybe guys like us pass on it, but the people who don't know about secondary markets or are new to the market and just want something really nice on their shelf are mm-hmm. still going to buy it. Yeah. Well, I mean, and, and so, if, if the secondary market goes away, the secondary market purchasers go away. So that means maybe some of those things that we want, we can get again. <laughs> like we're, we're able to see things on maybe. the shelf because they're not buying to flip. Like there's this large quantity of people. I never, I'll, I never thought there were a ton of like flipper type personalities in this community. I'm in a town that has less than 20,000 people. Like it's a mm-hmm. small, small town. And I'm like, there's, there's not, there, there's not a huge volume of people that are interested in whiskey at this level, or I would have started a whiskey club at this point, but there's no flippers. And I was in the store one day and this dude runs in and he's like, they had set out two bottles of stag and I picked up my bottle. You know, I did the thing I'm supposed to do, leave one behind for somebody else. Whiskey karma is a real thing. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, he runs in and he picks that up and he finds a bottle of Blanton's. He finds all these things and he's like, sweet, I can't wait. Like I could see it in his eyes. He's out in the parking lot snapping pictures for secondary mm-hmm. market sales. And I'm like, this is a small town in the middle of nowhere. Why is this shit happening? And I should have known then. That's when I should have went out and bought all the $60 wellers that I could have bought. Mm-hmm. It's it's over. But you got the whiskey karma that you didn't, and I mean, I don't know that it's paid off yet. Maybe not, but arguably, and I think this is a good way to kind of circle back to why we do this in the first place. We get to do this. Yeah, you know, well, we had to we because I deep dive on it, like. Anytime my wife's like, Hey, let's do this new thing. Like, do you want to do the thing? Because when you do the thing, like we're, we're, there's no like halfway where we're going all in on this, this, whatever it is, you know, is it, mm. we're going to go and you know, volunteer at the local community theater. We're like, okay, we're going to get on the board of directors. We're going to help raise money. We're going to make them more profitable. We're going to build sets. We're going to help direct. We're going to do all the things, just all the things. And so that's why I'm here because I have an addictive personality, maybe. But not like at an alcoholic level, just at a consumption of information level. Yeah, I would agree. I would, I would put myself in the same thing. You know how many conversations I had to have with family members, my mother-in-law, any number of people when all these bottles started showing up? 
And it's like, are you okay? Are you becoming an alcoholic? <laughs> I was like, no, I still drink one to maybe two drinks a night, probably less right. on average. Like, oh, there's, there's um, spans of days where I don't have anything to drink. Yeah. I mean, you know, it happens I on a regular scare. basis. You know, I had a recent scare. I went two yeah. and a half, three weeks without drinking anything. And, um, yeah. I mean, I had a shitload of samples to catch up on afterwards, but I know, like, I could never safely drink everything that I have in the house just right now. If I never got another ounce in here, it's not just You've not done happening. the math, haven't you? You've done the math on how long you could continually get drunk and not run out. I could, and given my tolerance, it would still take quite a lot. This, this, this is this is the this is when you know your collection is out of hand. Is when you do the math on it. Like you're like, okay, I know I have X such amount of bottles, and I know how much ounces in a bottle, and I know how much how many ounces I can generically drink and be okay. Like, and then you run the mm-hmm. math out, and you're like. I could drink and get drunk every day for three years and not run out. That's, and that's when you start a podcast. So you can justify all this. This is the guy that I was talking to last week who was not a, it was a whiskey tangential podcast. You know, it was just somebody that I really wanted, really, really wanted to talk to. And I was like, I just started the podcast to have an excuse for have all the bottles, you know, like, yeah, this is, is, there's a little more to it than that, but it's what it becomes. That's why I added the um, the level on Patreon, mm-hmm. my twenty five, you know, the twenty five dollar level. It's because see, and the thing is, I almost pulled the trigger on that, mm-hmm. but then I looked around my office and I was like, I literally have sixty sample bottles already. <laughs> I don't oh need to add to it at this point. Oh, I wish I had sixty. Well, see, oh. the thing is, right before I got COVID, I went on a sample bottle killing spree, and it was just like, all right, mm-hmm. that is my goal for the next month i'm just gonna kill sample bottles and there was triple that number before and i just burned through a bunch and then whenever i got covid i was like no don't drink any because i want to make sure that i feel okay about things and then now that i'm back i just haven't picked them back up again you know like it's 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 a job no that's fair and i don't i don't expect the people who are going to pull the trigger 25 bucks to to get um uh you know 10 to 12 samples a month are going to be the people like us who are reviewing it because they just don't have mm-hmm. time. And chances are, if they're people who are seriously reviewing things, they're getting some of these things on their own anyway. It's really people who just want to, you know, who I really appreciate are listening to the show, who, um, you know, hear, hear me talk to David Mandel about his time at Bardstown Bourbon Company and they want to try for call it. Or they hear me talk about how much Perry and Eric love the Wilderness Trail eight-year-old. So this month or next month, I guess they're going to get mm-hmm. a, sample the eight-year-old um it's it's more just to spread the spread the love around like i've gotten really lucky i've had a lot of good karma come my way and i've got more karma coming my way in terms of getting to talk to these people getting to go to kentucky getting to come on your show getting to talk to these people who i would never have known getting to make these friends across the country and across the world frankly who i had never met like COVID did more for my emotional health than anything i had done in the past honestly um because i met all these people and built these relationships so that when you like you said when we walked into that room at timbip weekend and we Mm -hmm. saw all these people who we had seen on chat but never actually met or heard about and you're like oh that's a real person i might have something in contact in common with them and i'm going to talk to them you know that's to me is is worth the price of a sample bottle it's worth you know a whatever yeah. two ounce Boston round costs, whatever the shipping costs. Like I know I'm probably, I'm surely 
losing money on a $25, but I don't really care. I'm more interested in showing people. This is not, this has not been about money to begin with from you. Exactly. It's not about money. That's not where, if you start off with the idea of going back to this original thought of, you know, if, if someone's thinking, Oh, I want to do a podcast. Like if you begin with the idea that you want to make money, you are in the wrong place. <laughs> podcasting mm-hmm. is not necessarily it to begin with, but whiskey podcasting certainly isn't it. Find something that's mm-hmm. a little more mainstream. You're going to be likely to have more tens of thousands of followers. Mm-hmm. Whiskey ain't it. <laughs> you're not mm-hmm. in the right place, but, um, and companies you know, you, are getting smarter now. They they know that there are plenty of people out there already in our market, already doing podcasts, YouTube shows, whatever you want to call it, uh, and written word for that matter, who are already giving either honest reviews or shilling for the companies in order to get more from the companies later on. There's, I would argue that there's really no more room for people like that. And if you can find something like that, I mean, I guess more power to you, but... Like, I wouldn't feel good about being that person, but that's me. I mean, well, and the, like and said, the thing is, if, if you're just chilling for a company, it becomes really, really apparent really, really quickly. Like people get right. that. They understand what's happening. Um, you know, and there's, there's been a handful of, of YouTube channels, podcasts that have attempted to address that issue. Like, oh, well, people think we're a shill and, you know, a, ho- a host of things, but it brings an interesting question. Like honest reviews are important. Do you give bad reviews? Like, how do you deal with that? Like, if you taste something like, mm, I don't like this, are you willing to give a bad review or just don't give one at all? It's a good question. I, uh, it depends on the company, to be honest. So what I'll do is if I, I mean, if I buy something and I don't like it, I'll probably just put it aside. If a company sends me something and I don't like it, um, I will tell them mm-hmm. i just flat out say look i want to have a conversation it can be online or offline um i mean if i don't line if i don't like their entire line like they send me three or four things and i don't like any of them mm-hmm. like knock wood that hasn't happened yet but that's a different conversation but if i can say like look you guys send me a couple things i liked the first two didn't really like the other two here's what i'd like to do i would like to put out the reviews of these other things and I'll put out the other's reviews if, if you're okay with it. Right. You know, the editorial Just be aware it's mine. not necessarily going to be positive press. Exactly. Like you have to understand you don't get a say in what's said in that review, mm-hmm. but I'm giving you the option to have it withheld. And I do that also only with what I judge to be companies for which a bad review like that can make a serious negative difference. Mm-hmm. You know, like Heaven Hill can, I mean, I'm not getting anything from them, so maybe that's a bad example. Um, but like, but they can weather a that, bad review from day. They can weather a bad review. Right. They can weather yeah, your yeah. bad review. You know, exactly. But, but a brand new craft yeah. distillery that has just launched Hidden Barn. Hidden mm-hmm. Barn might be negatively impacted by a review at this point because they're right off the rip. Now, upside, you don't have to give one because everybody already has. There's a bunch of people that's dumping on it already. But yeah. like that's going to be an impact to them even with a name like Jackie's I can behind them. That's that's mm-hmm. that's sort of the way it works. Right. But if I'm dealing with like a craft distillery in Brooklyn or something that's not a Kings County because I think Kings County can can weather a bad review at this point. Yeah. Um they've got they've got like 
cult classic status in craft, right? So you get exactly. those, like Wilderness Trail got to cult classic and then became what is considered a heritage distiller now. But mm-hmm. before that, they were there. Barstown Bourbon Company is there. Uh, yeah, I would like challenge. Those are, those are both less than 10 years old. They're less than right. a decade old and they're already achieved heritage status, which is insane. Yeah. But it, that speaks about their volume. It speaks about their quality, but they, they were there. Like people were, and you know, mm-hmm. they pushed out their eight year and, uh, it is one of the better bottles of whiskey I've had this year. You know, I, I'm not gonna say it's the best, but it's, I mean, because I did have pretty special pour at the Mictors distillery this year during a very distinct tour. So it can't be one of the, it can't be the best, but also I would never give tasting notes on a bottle like that because no one's ever going to have it. It's not worth it. I just like, yeah. this was great. Like that's, that's the yeah. only review I can give on stuff like that. Yeah. But if, you, if you're I, going to, if you're making the pilgrimage to Mictors to in Louisville to pay 800 or 1200 bucks for an ounce of a pour, you don't give a shit what it tastes like you're doing it because it, because you're set, you can say you've done it. It's an experience. It is, it is a, it is a thing that is entirely different, but I struggle with this because I don't do a ton of reviews. I, I, I throw some out on Instagram from time to time and mm-hmm. I'm trying to do more. I'm trying to make that a, a facet. And for things I, I'm, I'm trying to indicate if I like it. And if I don't like it, I'm not necessarily saying I don't like it, but I'm trying to find ways of relating it to someone who might based off of a flavor that came out of it. If it's just, patently bad there's a fault with it i probably won't talk about it at all but Mm -hmm. luckily everything is coming out of my personal collection and no one has asked me to review anything Mm -hmm. so it's just my opinion you know i don't have any expectation um you know i haven't really hit the point where i've had a handful of things that have been sent to me but there have also been things we've talked about on a podcast with a human being being on the other side you know five trails sent me some stuff and then i talked to david coors which, you know, it's kind of cool to talk to a guy whose last name is Coors of Coors Company. Mm-hmm. Like that was kind of cool. Yeah. But, um, it just feels, it feels bad to give a bad review. And I don't mm-hmm. want to ever get to the point where it feels good to give a bad review. Yeah, you shouldn't get to that. I think if you get to that point, you've become a, a cynic and you've become, mm-hmm. you should probably take a break from the hobby. Well, I'm cynic everywhere um, else. Like I'm a cynic in my job. So I want to keep it there and I mean, make this a fun thing. I mean, I am too. I'm a sarcastic asshole everywhere else. Right. Um, and here, but I, so I can't disclose the name of the company yet. Um, I can, t- I'll tell you offline if you want, but I can't say it on, on air. Um, I ended up getting in contact with them kind of in a very roundabout fashion. And I'm hoping to have them on. They're going to come onto the podcast at some point. But they are a brand that has grown in their locality over about a decade now. Put out a bunch of different things, some very interesting products. Um, and I asked for samples because I really wanted to try. Mm-hmm. And the owner, who's also, I think, the head distiller, uh, said you know, by email, you said, you know, here are kind of background notes for what each of these things are. So you get a better sense of not necessarily tasting notes, but what they're intending this to be. And I think intention is a huge thing in, in your reviews, because if you're expecting something and that doesn't meet your expectations, that's not the whiskey's fault. It's yours. If you expect every 12 year old bourbon to taste like Elijah Craig barrel proof, you're going to be disappointed. And similarly, if you expect every 
you know, one to two year old ride to taste terrible, you're also going to be disappointed and you're going to go in thinking they're wrong. So this company, um, the guy said, look, I checked this because I had to make sure it was true. Um, look, we, you are the third national reviewer that we've sent this to. The other two are Fred Minnick and the Whiskey Wash. And I was like, well, you've fuck. made it, man. You've made yeah, it. Like, I'm like, well, fuck. Because now, of course, you, you know, we can say until we're blue in the face that that doesn't make a difference for us editorially. But of course it does. Of course it does. Because now, not only will I have to disclose that when it eventually comes out, because someone's going to notice it. Like, even I'd rather grab that bull mm-hmm. by the horn and just address it. Right. Um, now, it's still a very local brand, very limited distribution that is looking to grow and is still at a place where a bad review from a national reviewer, as small as I am, can still make, make a, a difference. big difference. Mm-hmm. So fortunately, the first three of the six samples I've tried, I have enjoyed each in its turn, mm-hmm. some a little more than other, but you know, nothing has been bad. You haven't found a fault yet. Not, not really. No, nothing that couldn't be, nothing that couldn't be fixed or addressed. Mm-hmm. And that's the other thing too, is consider if it's too flawed to salvage or if it's something that has flaws, but can be fixed either with, you know, more proof, more aging, less aging, you know, whatever. Um, I think giving constructive negativity is perfectly acceptable, mm-hmm. even for a smaller brand. Well, some may disagree with me. So, um, this brand, I still have three samples to try. If I try them and I don't like them, the obvious question is going to be, well, how do I address it? So I'm going to talk to the distiller and I'm going to say, look, mm-hmm. this is my ranking. This is how I like things. Um, this is what I'm going to say about them. I leave it to you to tell me which ones you want. I've had companies tell me, put them all out there. I've had some say, okay, you know, hold back that one or that one, go forward with the others. And that's, that's the deal that I've made with myself where I'm okay with it. Like if if they provided you a sample, that's the way you do it. But if it is just something you taste, I guess if you bought it yourself and you're like, I don't like this, are you going to send it to them as a notice? Like, Hey, I'm about to put this out. Or is this only for provided samples? Um, I would say only for provided samples. If it's something I've bought myself, um, then I just make a judgment call. Um, and in that case, it's much more about does the, it's not even about the negative review, honestly. It's about does the review add anything to the milieu about it? Gotcha. And if it doesn't, if it's just a negative review, then I, I don't really care like i'll stand behind it but um i'll stand behind it but i just look at it and say well what am i adding here and for and for that matter for the low end of the scale because god knows i've 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 asked this question myself and i've asked other people who have done reviews for a lot longer than either of us have Mm -hmm. i've said like what do you do with those that you would rank like a one out of ten or unsalvageable or just bad and there isn't consensus. Like there are people who will say to keep, to keep your journalistic integrity, you have to put every review out and you have to 
be honest, even if it might hurt the brand. There are others who say you can't put a review of, let's say, under four out of 10 out there because then people will stop sending you things. Now that happens to be bullshit. I've proven that wrong, but the point, I think the point behind it may remain the same that if you start shitting on everything, then people will be at least more hesitant to send you things. Um, and I think you also have to be really open to exploring something in a different light based on conversation. Mm-hmm. And with that, I can speak to one, which I'll say um, was Middle West Spirits uh, and their wheat whiskey. Because when I first tasted it, it it wasn't bad. It wasn't to that level. It was just like, I didn't really know what to do with it. I thought it was okay. It's fine. But like there are other, like I'd rather get the Bernheim or something. And there aren't a lot of wheat whiskeys out there. So a negative review on that has a significant impact just because there aren't a lot of comparisons. Mm-hmm. So, but if somebody Google's wheat whiskey, there's not that many options that are going to come up and you're going to be right. one of them. Exactly. Um, so I talked to the distiller and he happened to say before he even suggested it, you know, don't look at this as a bourbon type product that is, that happens to be a wheat whiskey as opposed to a weeded bourbon or something like that. Instead, this was designed as a wheat whiskey in the style of a single malt. It's 95% wheat, 5% malted barley. Barley's not there for flavor. It's just for enzymatic uh, enzymatic conversion. But I retasted it after hearing that, and it did change my notes on it. Because then I'm thinking about going back to the point of intentionality. What is the distiller intending to do with this product? And that's what you have to measure it against to Mm -hmm. the best of your ability. Um, Black button distilling, I point to as a frequent example because their four grain blue label bourbon at 92 proof for around two years old, two, three years old. Um, a lot of people would describe as young and grainy. Mm-hmm. And I instead felt that the grain was so clear and flavorful and, and clean. That was the intent. That that, that was the intent. Like they, mm-hmm. and they said they don't want to hide the grain. They want you to know that they're using Danko rye. They want you to know that they're using local New York barley and New York wheat. You know, Dancing Goat wants you to know they're using Danko rye. Stolen Wolf wants you to know they're using Rosen rye. Mm-hmm. So, of course, they're going to be grain forward. And this yeah. particular distillery I can't mention, they want to be grain forward because they want to show what their locality can produce. And to that to that point, too, and then I'll, I'll shut up, is that when you say something is young, which is the most common criticism of craft anything, mm-hmm. what do you mean? Do you mean that it tastes like it just needs more age? Do you mean that you can taste the yeast? Do you mean that you're tasting fermentation? Are you tasting grain that you don't like? What does that mean? That doesn't connect with the average consumer. That that is not right. something that the average person that is not something that me five years ago would have had any context to put behind it. Mm-hmm. But the problem is that me today has exactly the problem you just indicated. When you're saying young, it could be five different things, but I know to look mm-hmm. for those things. You know, when I taste it, like you're saying right. young and what you could be saying is that it is grain forward. And that's one of the things that I'm really encouraged by with craft distillers, with people like Dancing Goat is that they're not shying away from grain forward because it used to be an insult. It's like, Oh, it's grain mm-hmm. forward. Uh, you can really taste the corn in this. And their statement now is it's corn-based whiskey why shouldn't you taste the 
corn in it? Like, what are you trying to, like, what are you after? Are you after it being just caramel and brown sugar and, you know, vanilla and all of the standard bourbon notes and you don't even know corn's in there anymore? That's fine. There's a thousand whiskeys out there like that already. We're doing something different. And, and, and I'm, I'm encouraged by those things that they're taking on those things that historically would have been insults and saying, it's not an insult. It's a characteristic that we're okay with, but anybody who's producing a review has to provide something more of value than just saying it's Mm -hmm. young. What does young mean? You know, Mm -hmm. I I was with the, the, the folks from Bespoken Spirits and they have technically young stuff, but they're aging in a different fashion. And I was incredibly surprised by the rye that was you know, three months old or whatever their, their number is. It didn't taste three months to me. It tasted older than that. But if I'd have mm-hmm. said young, what, what, what does that mean to somebody else? You know, it's, right. And I understand and I'll, I'll address the obvious uh, criticism of, of intentionality, which is that you're then moving the goalposts for each whiskey. If you're going by the intentionality of what the distiller is wanting you to taste and wanting you to experience in that pour, then yes, I fully admit you're going from a, you know, you're not dealing apple to apple. It's apple to orange at that point. Um, having said that, if you're open about that as a reviewer, that's fine. Mm-hmm. You know, I still have my scale and the, the scores that I give will still account are still accountable to that scale. But when you're asking, when someone asks like, how does this whiskey rate higher than this one? And yet the notes make it sound like the second one was better, even though the rating was lower. It's because I'm rating them based on what the expectations are right? and what it should be. And you know, the, the nine month old dad's hat that I included in the advent calendar I know some people didn't like it. I thought it was five years old when I first tried it. Mm -hmm. So to me, that didn't taste quote unquote young. And that's, well, young doesn't mean anything. That's that's just it. It's, it's, it's an arbitrary value that we've assigned to. I mean, all flavors Mm -hmm. arbitrary. Like when I say banana and you think banana, we're going to think different things. Maybe I'm thinking an overripe mushy banana and you're thinking banana runs. Mm -hmm. Flavor doesn't mean a ton of things, but uh, the thing that is interesting to me of, of what you're saying is, you know, kind of part of the reason I got into this to begin with is that I thoroughly enjoy the marketing stories that exist for brands. And I know a lot of them are just straight bullshit and I get it. <laughs> but for the average consumer, that story means something and they connect with it and it impacts their overall experience with the whiskey in the same mm-hmm. way that you're trying to measure the intentionality of the distiller and it impacts how you taste it. Right. You tasted it blind. You give your notes. You don't like it. Then you hear them tell you what they're trying to do. They're carrying you on a story with them. It's not the same thing mm-hmm. as a marketing story, but I guess technically it's a marketing story. Um, but they're I, saying, I guess the point is my, there's a difference though. Right. Yeah. The, the, this is my intent on how I'm trying to get there. And you're like, okay, I can appreciate what you're after. I, I get it. I get what the thing is. You know, um, mm-hmm. if I'm trying to recreate a whiskey from the 1700s, it's probably not going to be aged in a barrel. It's going to be white dog. It's going to be a host of other things. But if I tasted that blind, I'd be like, this is crap. Uh, this is just, you know, is, okay, now mm-hmm. I get what you're trying to do. And if I measured against what your goal was when you set out and I can create that as a part of my tasting notes, 
I want to. I, I want to fill out the rest of the story because aside from the you's and the me's and the Steve's of who, who's in chat right now, mm-hmm. like we're looking at it through a microscope, but most of the folks who might stumble across my random website and see the random words that I wrote down, the story impacts how they impact, how, how they taste the things. It impacts how they relate to it. It impacts how they talk to their friends when they're drinking it together. And that's just as important. It is a part of the experience for them. But to that end, when you taste stuff, do you go somewhere after you've tasted it kind of as a sounding board? Do you go and like look at specific websites where there's tasting notes already? Like, is there a palette you trust? Like, I just don't feel great about this. I want to go see what somebody else said. Like, is there a place? For me, no. Um, for whatever reason, and this isn't to say that my palates are high and mighty. It's it's really not. That's not what I'm intending to say next. Um, I have a pretty good sense of when my palate is off. And that can be whether it's truly off, like there are flavors I'm getting that I shouldn't be getting, or whether it's muted for some reason, or, you know, um, I, I just have a, I've built a good innate sense of when it's off. And if I know my palate is off, I'm not tasting that night. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll do it when, when my nose is right, when my palate is right, because it's not fair to the product to, you know, put it through a shitty machine, basically. Um, in terms of looking at other things, I will say there are palates that I do trust. Um, rarely do I trust them universally. Um, you know, there are certain palettes I trust more for rise. There are certain palettes I trust more for craft. There are certain palettes I trust more for heritage brands, um, you know, who aren't like, for example, who aren't going to just say the Koi Hill is amazing because it's a high proof, you know, um, I, I want someone, I look for people who generally have, um, similar wording, like they'll they'll use the same kind of vocabulary or at least things that I'm familiar with so I know what I'm dealing with and that's just a matter of building your tasting vocabulary like um, I've started using sultanas a lot which are just golden raisins um, but I use it because for whatever reason sultana to me has a different connotation in my brain mm-hmm. it goes more towards like a dehydrated white grape as opposed to the golden raisins that you, you know, pull out of the right. box as a kid. Um, of course, I know they're the same thing. So impress me on them. Yeah, they're the same thing. But it's I think not, there's a difference. That's like, it's, like saying, it's like saying that, that Pepsi and Coca-Cola are the same thing. They're both corn sugar-based sodas. They're distinctly different flavor profiles. If you go to a restaurant and somebody says, hey, I want a Coke. And they're like, no, we've got – all we have is Pepsi. You say, okay, that's fine. But it's distinctly different. And so, you know, from one brand to the other, yeah, it's still a dried grape, but it's going to be treated differently. It may be, um, have some additional flavoring that is, is created. So I get what you're after. Like having a specific brand makes sense. Yeah. And to that, let's take the cola note. I mean, there are things that I get cola syrup in. And sometimes it's more general, like just that dark, unctuous sweetness that's mm-hmm. clearly very sugary, but also, has that depth and richness in the back end. Um, sometimes, most of the time, honestly, I find it's a pretty general note. 
sometimes it is very specific of like it's Pepsi or it's, you know, the Mexican Coke out of a glass bottle or, that's you know, a big difference. Um, that's a big difference. Huge difference. Um, but if you're just talking about the cola syrup, sometimes it is the same. Right. You know, and one of the ways that I know that I'm also off, frankly, is um, I'm particularly sensitive to red fruit varieties, mm-hmm. to woodiness and to um, what kind of pepper is is hitting the tongue. So if I am smelling something on the nose and I can't tell and it's has a fruit note and I truly can't tell like what category of fruit it's in, my nose is off. If I'm tasting something and all I can taste is wood and it's not an Eagle Rare 17 or a Saz 18 or an Elijah Craig 18 for that matter, you know, if it's not oak water, but all I taste is wood, mm-hmm. maybe I need to revisit that. Um, if I'm, if this is a fairly young whiskey and I'm getting just, you know, slammed with oak pepper on the tip of my tongue, something's not right. And maybe it has been in the cases once in a while that is just the profile that it's mm-hmm. some differential fruit or there is a lot of woodiness where there shouldn't be. But it, to me, that says something might be off with mine, and I don't take the chance of, of reviewing it. Um, but I also want to go to one of your uh, one of the other points you made, which is when you're going, you made this kind of implicitly, which was if you go into a liquor store, us newbie, anything in between. Um, and I say newbie with the utmost love because we all were newbies at one point. Yeah, and we should, and we really should remember that. Um, if you're just looking at a bourbon shelf like i'm still intimidated when i go into a total wine like there's so many fucking bottles on the shelf there's it's so overload how it's overload you don't know who you have to break it point, into sections mentally and be like all right, right. i'm going to examine this section then this section like you mm-hmm. it, you become a robot of cataloging yep. information yep and you also we also have the extra thing of like you know it we see this brand where does this brand come from mm-hmm. you know is this a total wine brand? I'm, I'm harking on total wine. It's just an example. Don't, you know, right. if you're listening, cool it. Um, we're still friends. We're still friends. We're still friends. You know, but like we know that two stars, horrible name for a bourbon anyway, but we know that two star is a spirits direct brand that total wine sources mm-hmm. and they put out under their own label. We know that any number of other brands on the shelf are non-distilling producers who have bought MGP in some form or fashion and made their own product out of it. Or just bottle it as is and put it out. So we've got that extra knowledge to be like, okay, I got to check because it's distilled in Indiana, but produced here. You know, the fuck does that mean? Um, so in that case, the names, the labels, the information on the label become incredibly important. And I think about, um, to your example of the white dog and like, if you just taste it blind, you'd be like, the fuck is this? This is disgusting. Um, versus knowing it's white dog and being like, Oh, this is a really fresh flavor of this whiskey. Um, at stolen wolf, I got to try the Rosen rye at 131 proof right off the still. Yep. I've gotten to taste westward white dog that tastes like outback brown bread. It's fucking delicious. I would drink the, the white dog as soon as I drink their cast strength. Mm-hmm. Um, my, uh, the next episode of uh, the podcast that comes out, it's going to come out. Not I'm taking a week off when I'm in Kentucky and then, um, should come off, come out the week after is with Van Brunt Stillhouse in Brooklyn. And they have a uh, white rye 
mm-hmm. that is it's a it's a a rye hundred percent New York rye that is aged for about four months in used barrels in their own used barrels. Um, what they wanted to call it was a rye reposado, which would fit if it were an agave spirit, of course, because right. it's because reposado has um, geographical considerations attached. They couldn't call it that. Right. But that being said, if you know that story and you've read the back of the label and you read the website where they say this is a rye reposado, we just can't call it that. Right. Um, it tastes like an agave spirit. And honestly, I don't like agave spirits, but I really liked that white rye. Mm-hmm. It was fresh. It was grassy. It was floral. You could taste the rye. You knew, at least I knew what varietal it was because I've kind of been on a binge with that recently, but mm-hmm. you could at least taste it was different. And you knew it was a different intentional product. Like they wanted to age it only four months with, and it has barely any color to it. What you would expect a four month and a used barrel to be. Right. Um, and if you're looking at that, like, wow, this should be an aged rye. You're going to think it's disgusting. But if you look at it and say, oh, this is a rye that's mimicking a reposado. I, would, it changes the I'm, connotation of it entirely. Yeah, like at that point, it's getting, I think I rated it like a 6.6, 6.7 on my scale because it fits exactly what it's aiming to do. Mm-hmm. And in that context, it's delicious. Yeah. I mean, if you tried to, it's it's not significantly different than if you said, I'm going to taste this rye and then I'm going to rate it on its capabilities of being a bourbon. Right. That's not what they were trying to do. They were not trying to create a bourbon. They were trying to create a rye in the same way that if you're trying to create a white dog spirit or you're trying to create something unique. You have to understand the context of it. And so it's part of the reason why like, you know, blind tastings are scary as shit because they could point <laughs> out that you don't like what you actually think you like, but they mm-hmm. also put you in a position where you don't have the entire concept of what you're trying to taste. Right. Mm-hmm. You don't know that the, that the intent is this is supposed to be a young whiskey, they're, they're really trying to be grain forward. They're, whatever the intent is, and you just, this is not good. I don't like this. Well, when I understand the context of what it is, I wouldn't pick it as a great bourbon, but I would pick it as a great example of corn whiskey, you know, like mm-hmm. that. And, yeah. and what's the difference between corn whiskey and bourbon at this point? If it goes in a brand new oak barrel, it's a hundred percent corn. It's all, it's, at that point, it's all the used or new cooperage. And, and then it, at that it, point, but if it goes in a new barrel, you could call it a bourbon, but it's a corn whiskey and, because it's 100% yeah. corn. It, it's both, mm-hmm. right? Right. It's both. It's but like, if the, I tried to gauge it as a bourbon, it wouldn't fare yeah. nearly the same. At the risk of, you know, sending up a flare like Jack Dan at the Jack Daniels debate, it's, it can be called Tennessee whiskey. It can be called bourbon it fits both categories the only thing that prevents them from calling it a bourbon is them right not law not process not anything just right they don't want to right it's their choice that's how they're gonna market it and to that extent i honor that choice in a review of jack daniels and i say it's a tennessee whiskey i categorize it as a tennessee whiskey um but there's also also nothing wrong with putting it in a blind flight against a host of other bourbons Exactly. Because they're Hell, treated put it in the a, same way. Put it in a flight of just brown forming products. Yep. You know, they're all going to have similar. And if we're numbers. talking about the barrel proof stuff, it's probably going to win. It is probably going to win. Although an old Forester barrel proof might put up a fight, but the Jack will probably win. You're not win. wrong. You're not wrong. Yeah. Those have been, 
I didn't think I liked Old Forester before that, the 150th anniversary, honestly. Those mm-hmm. two changed my mind, and then that Jackie left. So, but uh, do you think it's going to change drastically? Oh, well, I'll save that one for a minute. Sorry, go on. Okay, okay. Um, yeah, like the, so. That's like that's as much honoring the intent of the distiller as anything else. Like we could put it in the blind of all bourbons. We could put it in the blind of Tennessee whiskeys that could call themselves bourbons or Tennessee bourbons or whatever. Um, it's within the context. And when I do things blind, I don't do them 100% blind. Mm-hmm. I, I know I try to bunch things in the same categories, at least right. like, I don't know brand. I don't know proof. Um, I'll at least know if it's like a high proof set. So I am not expecting 80 and then get my own, my mouth blown out. Um, like when I shot that, um, obtainium, God, it still hurts. Was that the, was that the stuff that, uh, Kira was forcing you to drink? No, that was the one that, um, right before everyone, like it was after the live, everyone had left. We were going out to the patio and I was just like, Oh, I just got to gotcha. empty what's in my Glencairn. And mm-hmm. I doubled over for a second because I forgot what was in there. 151, 151 yep. plus proof obtainium. Uh, and like, I'm a proof hound. I love my proof. And even that was like, holy fuck. But it was, was also at the end of the weekend. I mean, like you're, you're on the trailing end of abuse for several days. True. True. So, you know, uh, so I'll at least know like category and in general, what the got, you know, what the, what the rails are. Mm. I'll know where the rails are. And then within there, I don't know what brand, I don't know anything else about it. The age, nothing what kind of wood it was. I'm just looking for what are the flavors that I'm getting? What am I experiencing? Where am I, where is it experiencing? Uh, where is it hitting my tongue? Where are certain flavors hitting my tongue? Front is where I usually get pepper. Mid palate might be a little richer. Back palate's going to get some of the more smoke. What's over here in the mouth, kind of in the jowl versus under the tongue or back down further. What occasionally, this is kind of rare, but what hits the top of my palate? There have been a couple of things that have done that and shocked me because I'm like, the fuck is it doing up there? It shouldn't be there, but um, it's certainly interesting when it happens. Right. Um, and that way, I think I just, I'm trying to strike a balance between I want to know that context. I want to know at least some context of what something's going to taste like or what it should taste like versus just going blind and saying, well, this thing tastes like shit because I'm expecting it to be something and it's really something else. And again, that would be my fault, not the whiskey's. <laughs> so I'm gonna I'm gonna go back sort of to to a statement, and it's not gonna be direct, right? Because we were talking, you, you loosely mentioned Jackie, but I don't even want to go back to Jackie. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you. So regularly, a whiskey hits the market, and everybody's like, "This is it!" And like everybody rushes to go and review it and want to taste it. And, you know, like, I think of a, a prime one is you know Remus Remus Five hit really hard. I think this time last year. Everybody's like, ah, I got to review it. I want to see what this is, what the hype is all about. Mm-hmm. What, what is your reaction? Cause I'll, I'll give you mine later on, but what is your reaction whenever you start seeing a bunch of people dumping on something you haven't tasted yet? So uh, an example for me is the Leopold three chamber rye. When that hit, I was excited about it. And then I just, review after review after review was like, eh, this is not good. This is terrible. This is, you know, there was a bunch of people that just did not like it. Like, how do you react? Mm-hmm. Like, is the, does that make you want to taste it more or less? Um, I would, I generally say I'm, I'm 
not that affected by those. It's, it really comes down to more, do I think it's worth my time to taste it? Mm-hmm. Understanding that it could be bad. Right. Like the Leopold is a great example. I mean, that's, it's a, the batch one was a $250 bottle. It was brand new type, you know, on a still that hadn't been made in 150 years or whatever, or how, however long it was. Um, certainly at least since prohibition. Um, it was <clears throat> at a hundred proof where it could have been higher. It was aged around four plus years. So 250 for that would be a pretty high price. I get that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I saw plenty of negative views saying like this didn't taste good. It didn't taste like rye. It didn't taste. And when people say it doesn't taste like rye, it means it doesn't taste like MGP. Right. Because that's the rye we've been conditioned to taste. There's mm-hmm. no, even the heritage brands, there's nobody putting out a rye that's competing against MGP. Um, the closest you could say maybe, maybe is Heaven Hill with like their Rittenhouse and um, what's the other one they put out? The Rittenhouse and the, um, or maybe the old Overholt from, whatever, it doesn't matter at this point. Like they're not, they're not known for their rye. These are all bourbon producers who happen to produce a rye. Beam has produced one good rye in the last 50 years. Booker's rye. <laughs> I had to think about that for a second. I was like, what ride did they put out that was good? And then I remember they point, put out Booker. Point made though. Yeah. That's exactly, exactly the point. Mm-hmm. You know, wild turkey rye is not flying off the shelves like 101 is, you know, um, cause you were conditioned to know these rye producers. Um, yeah. so I mean, rare breed rye is good though. Yeah. I, th- I think it's good. I, it's not it's my value. It's undervalued. Um, it's not the rye that I would necessarily go for, but anyway, but anyway so back to your question. Yeah. So, um, by the way, am I beating Perry's record at this point? I want to make sure. Cause now it's kind of, <laughs> now, I was kind wondering of like, if you would bring that up. I was wondering if you would bring that up. That, I, I uh, waited we're, until we're not the, there yet, but we're close. Okay. I waited until we hit the three mark. I was, I was waiting. I want to say at this point, it's just like personal pride. I was like, fuck tomorrow. <laughs> like, it is tomorrow. Fuck tomorrow. Um, yeah. So, the three chamber rye. I, of course I read some of the reviews. I saw the negative things. I saw the kind of um, consistent notes that people were putting out that they didn't like about it, that it was either too young or it was a different rye flavor than they were used to. So I take that. And it's the one time that I will let other reviews affect mine, which is I'll look at those and I'll say, okay, this is a rye that's made on a new system that hasn't been, there in at least let's say a hundred years just for argument's sake mm-hmm. it's using a brutzi rye which is a variety that most people don't use mgp uses anywhere between five and ten different rye varieties right in their products they're they're looking at commodity um, rye but i mean just based off volume exactly. they have to whatever is available is what they're going to use exactly they homogenize it later but they're getting whatever they can they don't they don't give a shit what variety as long as the quality is fine they're good yep um so they're using a Brutzi. So Leopold Bro is using a Brutzi rye mm-hmm. on a brand new system that they had to fabricate, do the history on, do the research on, fabricate probably more than once to get it right. <laughs> so, yeah. and then age it a number of years, to, at least four years to see, is this going to be good enough to make all of that work worthwhile? And taking all of those things and probably one or two that I've forgotten at this point into consideration 
then that 250 doesn't seem so far fetched. No, I, I never had a qualm with the price of it because I understood the work that went into it. You know, so, it, and, and part of me wants to be along the lines of initially the, 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 the tasting or review of it should be in an absence of a price. You don't, don't even consider price. But mm-hmm. once you've finished and you've got your tasting notes, you've got your rating, bring price in after the fact. You know, think mm-hmm. about it then and be like, okay, so do I feel like the money is worth the outcome here? And then mm-hmm. you can take into consideration the effort and, and the expectation because that one is a unique one because it is, is it's a really crazy ass experiment. That's all it is. It's a huge experiment of, and, and I'm willing to be here for that. And so kind of eliminating the $250, I get mm-hmm. in a position where whenever I see something new come out that everybody immediately wants to be like, this is the worst. I, I really want to taste it. I want to see, is mm-hmm. this everyone jumping on a hype train and saying the same thing over and over again, because it's an echo chamber or is it really that bad? And so kind of feeds back into this. You mentioned Jackie. She's in a new role and, and she put out, they put out Hidden Barn and I've mm-hmm. not seen a ton of positive press on it, but I want to try it even more. I want to see a batch one because mm-hmm. is it just people that were expecting it to be Old Forster 117 or Old Forster birthday bourbon? Like, is that what you were really after? You thought it was going to be the next Old Forster, but she's going into a craft experience. Mm-hmm in a new venture and you just don't see the same thing. And so yeah. now you're like, ah, this is terrible. Yeah. Look, I've connected with Jackie. I know the Neelys. I know, um, most of the people involved with that. I know, I know Nate at this point, like they all have good palates and mm-hmm. they put out good whiskey. They've all more than proven themselves to anyone who has a right to ask them to prove themselves. Right. If, and I, but I think you are spot on to say that that is the, that the issue is the expectation. You see Jackie's name and you're, it's fresh in your mind. You're still thinking old Forrester. Mm-hmm. You're still thinking you want those brown foreman notes. You want that high proof. If it's a, bar, a barrel proof, you want the experimental for the K series, the, sorry, not the K series, the, um, 117 series, yep. you know, but that's not what she's producing. And the other thing is she didn't produce this. Or at least, mm-hmm. you know, she didn't distill it. She, no, she, she may she have had a hand in the blending. She, she, she blended, blended this after the fact. And that's, that's another part of the conversation is that, and, and I had this loosely with, with somebody else, um, on a live stream is that it's entirely possible because their, their statement was like, this is so bad. They shouldn't have released it. They may not have had an option. This may be the literal best possible outcome they had from some barrels that they had put together, they had purchased, and the only way to blend it, this is the best thing that could happen, but they've got to sell through these to get to the next round because mm-hmm. they're not a, a large distillery. They're not a large brand. They're not any of those things. They've got to generate some revenue somehow, and sometimes you can't just sit on 8, 10, 20 barrels that you've blended together. You just you, you can't bury them and move on to the next thing. This may be the best possible outcome, but for me and back to the rule of three, I want to see this one. I want to see the next one. I don't want to see the one after that. I want to see the progression that occurs because in the same line, you know, thinking about Bardstown, I've got fusions one, three, four, five, six, and I want seven, eight, nine, ten. Like I want all the fusions because I want to see how they grew over time with their own distillate where not a ton of people were a big fan of fusion one. 
But as Bardstown has grown, they've become a huge fan of it. And that's what is interesting. Like that's what's valuable to me. But the more people that are like, oh, this is terrible. I want to taste it. Like, are you, are you being real or are you Mm -hmm. afraid to be the sole voice that says, no, I think this is good. Cause I think there's a bunch of that that exists in, 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 in whiskey, everything. Yeah. And you gotta, you gotta be willing to stand by your reviews. I mean, for whatever reason, uh, a lot of people, the majority of people, I should say, really liked, um, tag along batch from Booker's last year, the second mm-hmm. batch. I hated it. I just flat out hated it. Like would have given, I think I gave a pretty negative review anyway. I just, like it maybe not want to buy bookers anymore. That was my turning point, bookers. But other people were like, oh, this has reinvigorated my faith in it. <laughs> um, and I just, you have to be willing to stand by the review and say, if it's, if you're the lone voice saying it's good or if you're the lone voice saying it's bad. Right. You know, you don't have to be in an echo chamber and you can rep- represent a subsection of folks because it's not necessarily, I would, I would imagine at least half of the people who are saying it's bad genuinely believe that like they've tasted it. That's how they came Mm -hmm. out, but they may also not like quesadillas and I like quesadillas, right? Like that Mm -hmm. doesn't, we don't have to like the same things. And that's where I kind of have a hard time trying to give a negative review is because I don't like it, but that doesn't mean somebody else won't. And so what Mm -hmm. can I say about it? That is not saying I like it, but it's also not saying I think this is terrible. It's like, okay, if you want to relate to this, you need to like these five things to get there. You know, like you got to like, if it's got a high black licorice note, I'm not going to like it. I don't like black licorice, but there's a ton probably of people love who it. do. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I'm probably gonna love there's it. a ton of people who have so much hate inside themselves that they like black licorice. I mean, I, so I haven't, I haven't looked at the Hidden Barn reviews um, yet. I know great. that they ha- I know they haven't been great in general, but like, um, you'd seem to have looked at more of them, or at least you know gone through them. Certainly more. I say more, uh, like five, like five, five at this point. But it's five people that I genuine generally am okay with their reviews. It's not that I agree with them wholeheartedly, yeah. but yeah. that's that's fine. That's fine. Did you were there certain thorough lines that kind of went through each one that were consistent as to there why wasn't enough expansion was on there wasn't enough expansion on the why they didn't like it that made me feel comfortable about why they didn't like it. Okay, that's my problem. Exactly, that is my problem. I want to. I have no problem with you saying it's bad or me saying it's bad, but I'm going to tell, tell why. you why. Mm-hmm. Right. If I think something's good, I'm going to tell you why. Right. Because even in telling me why, you may tell me something that I actually like. You know, mm-hmm. like this. This is an, a weird example. But two days ago, I have a coworker who is from India, um, and he's in the United States, been in the United States for a handful of years, and he had some candy in his office. And I just went in and was talking to him, like, oh, it's candy bowl. So I grabbed one, and he's like, hey, there's black salt in there. I've never had black salt in my life. Don't know what it is. And I'm like, cool, that's fine. I want to taste this. I want to see what it's about. You know, and, I, and I've tasted a lot of different things, and I you know, pop it in my mouth. So unique candy, got a lot of herbal and floral notes to it. It's not overly sweet. I'm here for it. I'm like, okay, this is pretty good. And he's like, there's black salt in there. Okay. I I don't, I don't don't know what that means. And when I finally got to the center where the black salt was, then I understood what he was saying. Got it. I don't know why someone would make that, Mm -hmm. 
but I can tell you how it tasted to me. And someone else might find that appealing, and that is okay. I don't have to like it. I really enjoyed the outer candy, the inside. I'm I'm gonna be reeling from that for the rest of my life. You know, like that is. Look, I know the big takeaway from the Timbit weekend was the durian cake massacre, but I would put um, this candy over top of that tomorrow. So, I know that that's been. The thing that's had the most legs, I think, from the entire weekend. Um, I can respect people for liking durian. It's just I don't understand the first person who cracked that one open, who cracked that quote-unquote fruit fruit open, open and said, let's eat this. Right. This smells like rotten garbage. wonder what it tastes like. Maybe that person did not have a sense of smell. I mean – if you have to ask someone, <laughs> I'm with you. I, I'm with you. you know, I understand. Like, and, and it's not quite yeah. like the that person's perfume is something I don't like. You know, like there, there's a lot of that that exists in the world. There's a ton of perfume. Sure. I don't care for the smell of the perfume, mm-hmm. but durian is a unique smell. And this is like, do you, are you aware of black salt? I assume you might be, but maybe you're not. I don't know. I'm honestly not sure that I am. It sounds. So, it has a ton of sulfur in it. No, I have not had that then. <laughs> the only thing I can relate it to is whenever I was a kid in the mid-90s, because I'm old, so there's that. Let's just put that out there. I had an uncle that would spend too, like $1,500 or $2,000 on fireworks. So if you think in like 1992, $2,000 on fireworks was a lot of money. Like that was a lot of money going into fireworks, like enough that you had to have a trailer and you would like bolt things down to it. And, you know, being the really solid Western Kentucky kid that I am, I'm like, I want to be on the team that lights the fireworks, right? You want to be that kid. And so you're doing this for like three hours one night. You're just lighting fireworks for three straight hours. You go up, it's like five people, you light the wick and you're lit and you're lit and you're lit and you're like, Oh, hope I get mine lit in time. And then they all go up at the same time. You run off and come back again the next day. Because when you light a firework off, you have a very distinct acrid smell that is sharp, right? Mm -hmm. But there's this like underlying smell of gunpowder sulfur that lives. The next day, what remains in your olfactory glands, like in your mouth and nose, is largely what black salt was. It is the remains of yesterday's fireworks that I have lit off Hmm. with a brand new amount of sulfur pushed into it. And it it was just pungent. Like enough that I had considered like – you know, corporal punishment is a thing that we don't do in our our family. We're We're not interested in that. But maybe I could use this candy as punishment. Be like, hey, like you're having you're having problems at school. You're doing things like eat this candy. I'm like, oh, it's candy. It's not. It's not. If you're you gonna learn real fast, I would just pop on my AC here. Hopefully, I don't think it should make any noise. But now you're fine. Um, it is still humid as fuck here. You've still um, got like uh 15-ish minutes to go. So. Oh, sweet. Cool. I'm still good. So 321.10 is what you've got to beat. Oh, I love a good marker. Okay. So, and I have a good topic that'll, um, that'll keep on that. So with the sulfur note, I compare that 
the first thing I thought of honestly was um was Pete. So do you like Pete? Um so I'm learning to be okay with Pete. Right? Pete okay. was not a thing that I was okay with. And then a year about a year ago, almost exactly a year ago, I was in Omaha and um was able to meet up with a, an Instagram personality who's Jack Bigadoo, who's Hood Sommelier, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he and I have interacted quite a few times online, a friendly guy. And I'm like, hey, I'm going to be in Omaha. He lived, I knew he lived there. I'm like, where do I need to go to drink? Like, wh- what's the whiskey bar? What's the place? Cause that's what I'm going to do. If I'm in your town, I'm like, hey, where should I go? He's like, no, 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 come to my house. I'm like, I'm, I'm not trying to come to your home. I don't want to intrude on your personal space. Mm-hmm. Just where do I need to go? Tell me where to, where to be. You know, when I go to, to Boise next week and be like, Hey, Robbie, where do I need to go? And he's like, go to this place, go to this place. I don't, I'm not trying to come into your space, but he's like, no, 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 come to my house. Don't worry about this. So I go out to his house and you know, he's a, 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 a more of a world spirits drinker. I mean, he does some bourbon, but he also has a ton of scotch and it, your collection, my collection and Perry's collection combined is just n- nothing. Like it was just an obscene amount of bottles. But, you know, when I get there, he's like, what do you want to drink? You drink anything. I'm like, I'm, I'm in your home. I'm not going to ask you, like, you take me on a journey. And so he took me on a journey of some, some different peated things. And so I'm starting to understand it a little more, you know, we kind of walk our way into it, but I'm not at the point where, um, what's the one that's like super, super peated that Don has. Oh, um, <clears throat> Got like a bunch of them. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple that it could go with there. Is it Port Charlotte? Uh, yeah, Port Charlotte or Octomore. Octomore. That's what it. So Octomore. That's what yeah. Don's got. Uh, Don's got a bunch of Octomore, and so I have. It wasn't like at that level, but I'm starting to appreciate it. Like I'm okay with that. This was nothing like that at mm-hmm. all. Like there was no redeemable quality about it. And you know, like the the guy that I work with, like this is a thing he grew up with, and so he's got some nostalgia to it. And I'm like, okay, cool, man. Like this is a thing you enjoy. I I didn't make a face, I didn't break, I didn't crack because I'm. It's this is a thing from his childhood. It's like, you know, if I'm like, mm-hmm. hey, my my grandfather was really big on eating a bologna sandwich with cheese and hot sauce on it. And he, if somebody ate it, like this is hot garbage. I'm like, you know what? I'm gonna fight you. I'm, I'm not trying to do that. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, this is fine. And then I'm gonna go to my office and I'm gonna. The chug water and do everything I can. And then I immediately got three more of them and made my direct reports. I was like, you all have to eat this like your job dependent upon it because it does. Cause I want to see the reaction, <laughs> which is entirely inappropriate as a manager, right? Like you shouldn't do that to people. Yeah. But it was yeah. worth it. It was worth it. Look, my grandpa, um, passed a couple years ago, but yesterday slash today would have the 17th would have been his 94th birthday. Um, child of the depression and one of his favorite things to eat like he called it a salad was sliced tomato sliced raw onion and blue cheese dressing that's it so so if you come to the salad or you come to the south you, you for your salad you'll get a sliced tomato sliced onion sliced cucumber and put some vinegar over top of it okay see i would call that an israeli salad but that's nice. <laughs> Ooh, we're in the south it's not no, an Israeli I salad. I know. So it's an Israeli good salad. Um, but <laughs> would you really do that? Yep, I did. I did. Incredibly that. terrible. Um, so, you know, that was his, yeah. his thing. So uh, I, I 
Yeah, like I I would not. I um I like raw onion. I don't like to- raw tomato or blue cheese. Not my thing. Blue cheese but, is um, where I fall apart there, but I would eat it anyways. Yeah, I can't. I can't. I can get I can get behind some of the things in that family. Like I've learned to like truffle, which I know is like really high flu to say, oh, I've learned to like this really expensive thing, but um it's that I'll never great. eat again. It sort of tastes like feet. Yeah. It sort of tastes like feet. And, and like, yeah. like th- th- this is a big thing that Anthony Bourdain was big on is like truffle oil is a manufactured thing that doesn't actually exist. But like yeah. my grandmother, yeah. like they had instant coffee always. I was talking to, to, to the guy I was interviewing last week's big coffee guy. You know, like she had Sanka around all the time and I drank it through gritted teeth just yeah. so I could get to the meal because sometimes you got to eat or drink the terrible thing to get to the really good stuff. And that's mm-hmm. okay. Totally fair. And with the, you know why it tastes like feet? I don't know. It's probably not, this is, I have the cilantro gene. This, this isn't a joke. This is an actual thing. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not fucking with you. Um, the reason it tastes like feet is because the same aspergillus fungus that creates blue cheese and a couple mm-hmm. other things in the wrong place also causes athlete's foot. Makes sense. I mean, it's so I need to, I need to like re, re come back to this a little bit. Like I haven't eaten a foot ever in my life. So, you know, like I don't lick feet, but in, in the way that your nose and your tongue are connected, right? You mm-hmm. smell certain feet smells. Sometimes it's like the, the smell of a truffle or blue cheese. And sometimes it's the smell of like, a really old cheese Danish, right? That's a different, uniquely mm-hmm. sweet, but disgusting smell as well, right? That's yep. the thing that exists. I just don't eat feet, you know? Yeah. I mean, make sure. I mean, okay, Dahmer, but, um, <laughs> like, there, we've got the look, man. Like, I mean, <laughs> if someone joined, we're like, eh, they might know. I mean, it's after hours. Who knows? Um, <laughs> Getting a little hungry and there's not many things open. But, uh, anyway, the, the thing that I was going to say about Pete got from Pete to feet and now I got to, you know, repeat. Let's um, bring it back again. Yeah. Yeah. You know, his brother repeat fell out of the boat who you left with. Oh, God. um, and, uh, so I was doing, I was trying these, uh, PETA things the other day. It's taken me a while to appreciate Pete as well. And now I, I do enjoy it, uh, to a certain level. And I, I really would, love to do a tasting series like multi-set tasting series of what peat can be like do one that's just the very basis peat but from different areas mm-hmm. so you get a sense of like what an isla versus a highland peat or an orkney peat or an indiana peat or you know all these things are different or mm-hmm. what danish peat is you know um and then go a little bit deeper into the types of peat or the depth of peat you know how many ppms it is in the phenols or whatever because octomore is supposedly the most peated whiskey in the world, but um, those measurements, those PPM measurements are all uh, pre-distillation and they're usually pre-fermentation. So, you know, they're usually pre-fermentation. So the levels that actually come out of distillation are far lower. So of course no one's going to measure them post-distillation. It's all, pre-distillation numbers. Um, 
So it's the heaviest peated mall in the world, whatever, whatever. The actual final PPM is not that much higher than a lot of other, like Port Charlotte, heavily peated stuff. Um, it's going to have a different character and it's going to taste smokier or less smokier because of the character of the peat, not because of the PPMs. The same PPM of Highland Park does not taste the same as a Kalila. Um, but anyway, I was tasting these peated whiskeys and, um, one of the rules in tastings is, of course, you know, you do peat last. Whatever right. else. Because you're you not going to get last. anything after that. It's, it's over. Right. Exactly. However, purely by accident, because I happen to be using pretzels as my palate cleanser and I ran out of pretzels and I just had that like bag of pretzel salt at the end, I started eating the pretzel salt. Mm-hmm. And suddenly, the peat was disappearing from my mouth. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, that can't be a coincidence. Mm-hmm. Like there's how many hours and shows of people saying you do peat last, peat overtakes everything. I can't stand peat. Is that blah, blah, blah. Can't be a coincidence. So then I start looking and this is where that scientific bent comes back in. I'm like, how does salt and phenols interact? Turns out that salt extraction is one of the main ways to get phenols out of any number of compounds in the scientific world. Just pure NaCl salt. Which is what you were just eating out of the bottom of the bag. Table salt. Table salt. Cholesterol, be damned. You're just eating salt. And it it fixed you. Yep. Wiped the peat right out of my mouth. So Hmm. now I'm thinking to myself, okay, does anyone else know about this? (laughs) Like... Is this an article? Now it's me and you and 12 other people that know this. Fine. Like, but is this an article that I can now write to be like, right. Pete doesn't have to be the last thing of your night anymore. All as you long need as you're is... willing to let your salt intake go up. Yeah. But like, you don't even need a lot. You just need some enough. To just kind of roll around your mouth a little bit, like a little flake salt or a little sea salt or whatever. It's, mm-hmm. That's all you need. And there's a scientific backing to why it happens. So it's not just like in my head someday that it was happening so now i'm even more excited to do a peat tasting because i want to break this baby out and say all right i gave you a little salt packet it's not going to hurt you it's not not enough to hurt you it's not going to increase your blood pressure or anything like just go with me on this because in reality like if you're tasting five different types of peat you do have to break in between to taste the different and how do you break that and you're still even if you break you're still impacted because of the thickness of that particular flavor profile you know it's 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 there and that's it's interesting interesting. it lingers but if you have salt in between Mm -hmm. and it has to be salt like a saltine doesn't work but if you like i do this sometimes like lick the saltine to, to get the salt on it. Yeah, because you're getting the only thing that matters on the saltine off of it, yeah. which is the salt. And, I, and honestly, I was doing that when I was really sick because I needed I needed to rehydrate. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the salt, if you're just licking the salt and not getting the saltine, the saltine part, the cracker part, is going to carry the peat mm-hmm. because the peat is um, fat and water-soluble. Phenols are fat and water-soluble. I'm, I'm pretty sure I'll double-check myself in the morning on that. But basically, it's really fucking hard to get rid of them. So how do you get rid of something that's both hydrogor- uh, hydrophilic and oilophilic? Salt. That's uh, Orgo 101. 
And it was like, holy shit, that makes so much sense. Mm-hmm. And suddenly, you know, this Pete thing that I can only try one Pete thing a night because I got to, you know, I don't know if the next Pete thing is going to be affected by it or whatever. Suddenly I can taste any number of ones I want. Mm-hmm. And that's hmm. exciting. Like how often do you get to try something or experience like something you need new to cut in the this off now. Nobody needs to know about this. You got a secret here. Don't be telling people about it. Okay. Well, you got to see like, you know, just make sure that we do like a teaser that's after 32110 and then we're fine. <laughs> um, I mean, that, yeah, we'll, we'll just we'll just we'll just cut it out of there. I won't, I won't it'll be 32111, we'll be fine. We'll be fine. Yeah. Um, so you you've you've exceeded Perry. Perry was 32101. Uh you are now the new record holder for uh biggest win bag uh in the history of the podcast so congratulations now we'll okay. say that in the next month we're supposed to have uh eric uh whiskey mutant on so he may take up the the gauntlet of trying to defeat you the only difference is that we're gonna probably have to do a morning episode and i don't know that i can knock He's... off four hours of the day i just did an episode with him I guess now it's two days ago. I want to say yesterday, mm-hmm. but it was two days ago. Um, he is number one. I just had a blast. It, it, I, when yeah. I wrote the message in the chat that it made my day, it really did make my day. It was great. Um, he has kids that even when they're away, he's got kids and things that he's got to do. Yep. So, um, that may be the limiting. You, you may be safe. You may be safe. Yeah. He's got but a limit. I've got some other interviews. I've got, I've, I've got one on Friday that hopefully doesn't go that long because realistically I've got, um, supposed to like leave town after I'm done interviewing him. <laughs> they start at five 30 and I'm like, ah, you know, we'll talk as long as you want to, but I got a two hour drive after we're done to right. go somewhere else. But yeah, I got you on that one, but uh, no, Eric, he's, he was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed the conversation. Um, and you can leave this in. I'm finally this in because I think he would appreciate me saying like you're someone with kids. You like I don't have kids. You're someone with kids. He's someone with kids, and also kids of a certain age. Yep. And between having kids of a certain age on one side, and then having a lot of your non-family or job life be consumed by whiskey stuff, sometimes you just want to talk about something else. Yep. And. Um, he's going to come back on under the influencer because I didn't even ask him about the whiskey mutant origin story. Yeah. Because we were talking about other stuff until yeah. we just ran out of time. That's the best. That, that, that's absolute best, you know, because like, I've still got like things about, Oh, we should, which we're not going to get to because we're at the end of the night for, for me at this point. But like you're mm-hmm. a highly competitive board gamer and you have a significant background in psychology and we should have talked about those things, but we didn't talk about it. I mean, significant enough that you were tutoring in psychology. I mean, like that's that's pretty significant, right? How did you know that? Because I do research, David. Because I yeah, do I know, research. but I know, but where is that listed? Is that on my LinkedIn profile still? <laughs> yeah, that's where you oh, you got to always go to somebody's LinkedIn because there's stuff buried underneath that little carrot that opens up and expands. See more and see more, and you get down to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so for your research, the only bit of information I can give you, start looking at people's LinkedIn. That honest to God has been so long ago that I forgot that was on my LinkedIn. So exactly. Props props to you. What normally happens nowadays, 
you know, this wasn't a thing whenever I was in college, but what normally happens is that when you start in college, they start encouraging you to start filling out LinkedIn and understand what it is because it's a certain mm-hmm. platform, right? So you get yep. in and you put in some college, college career type stuff. And then you had, you, you, you update it and you update it. And then you get into a position that you're comfortable in and you don't even really worry about what's below the see more button. You don't even mm-hmm. remember it's there. Yep. Like I'm distinctly aware of what is, what is in mine right now, but it's a good place to go for everyone and you can start finding stuff. Yeah. The competitive board gamer one was a little, that was more out of left field. We had a fun with that one, but that's yeah. another. Yeah. Super that's competitive. So it's, it's what I heard. Super competitive board gamer, board, board gamer. And you, like tutoring psychology, like so you're into the arts, you're into to board gaming, you're into baseball, you're into whiskey. Like there's just, I you're t- like a there hobbyist, be, man. I mean, if if psychology's on there, undoubtedly other things are on there too that I tutor. Yeah, I tutor. There like, were. I just stuck on the psychology yeah. one because it's the only one that I had. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. Like, languages aren't no, I, for me. Other stuff aren't for me. But you know, I yeah. I distinctly remember some experiences that I had during uh, my Psych 101 class, which was taught by a professor of the last name Ritter. So, you know, I made sure that wasn't any of Perry's kin. It's not. <laughs> she didn't you care gotta, for me too you, much. You got to ask because he's fucking related to everybody, apparently. And it's in the state of Kentucky, so it's possible. Right? <laughs> like that's that's the way it works, or whatever. But yeah. um. One last parting question, right? So you were at the 2021 Traverse City um, Whiskey Fest for Cherry Whiskey Fest, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Did you do the 2021 as well? I did, yeah. yeah. Okay, so we were both at that event. So we've been circling really? each other since 2020. Yep. yep. Okay. The virtual one. Yeah, not that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah we, were, we, we were there at the same time. I have my sample bottle somewhere floating around. Um. But I, I, I realized that effort. That's what I say. Like we've literally been in the same orbit for two years at this point. It's just a weird thing. And like whiskey, whiskey, yeah. whiskey is weird. But we're both very, I know you don't, I know you don't think of yourself as this or your, certainly at least your podcast is this, but I see your podcast as, as let's say more intellectual than I think you see it as. Mm-hmm. And and deeper and probing different way, like yeah, it's a different way than mine, but or Perry's, or but it's it has its own way. And I here, I'll give you a um, parting thing as well. So I don't know if you remember this because this was at the very end of, as you said, a night of much drinking mm-hmm. and much frivolity. But, um, the last night at whiskey at Timbip weekend, um, I asked you to hold back for a second because I wanted to ask you a question and I ended up never asking that question. Mm-hmm. I just let it slide. You didn't ask and it wasn't really like the right place and conducive to it at the time. I wasn't sure how to get to the next stage in the podcast. Like I felt like my podcast was missing something or if it wasn't missing something, there was some thing I was catching on that would need something more. And I started asking people that I know that we know, mm-hmm. like what if, what if, what do you think is missing? What has worked that might work for me? Ultimately, long story short, 
I was going to ask you to audition as a co-host. Mm-hmm. Um, and I hold to that. Um, the, there's a reason I didn't invite, I ultimately did not invite you to do so. And it was because I started, I listened more to your podcast. Like I, I re-listened to certain episodes and I said, we would have great banter. Like if, if you and I were on a podcast together and did an intro show or a side thing, we would have great banter and great conversations about really deep things in whiskey and other things as well. No question. But we go about our interviews in a very different way with diff- with our own bents. And mm-hmm. whereas I think, you know, Eric slid very well into, uh, into Perry's format because they have very similar yes. just worldviews on things, um, just as Swan had before. I know we could do that, but I think there's more benefit, at least in my mind, to having, you know, having all these distilleries and people on that we're both having on being on our shows individually mm-hmm. and having those two work together. That's not to say in the future, I won't ask you, but you know, I, you know, I, I'll I tell you exactly what I, cause I was talking with the guys from Joe filtered and they have a different format than what I have as well. And you're exactly right. So you, you identify what I probably would have said at that moment is that I think that the moments between where we were just talking would be great, but I think that, that would burn the way you go after a guest, and I think that is appropriate, and I don't think that there's anybody else doing that, right? I don't think that's a thing that exists in um, the, the whiskey podcast marketplace at the level that you're doing it. And so I would say the only thing that is missing from – your podcast is your own confidence that it is as good as it is. That's, that's, that's the only thing that's missing at this point. Um, beyond that, I'm going to say something and this might be a little controversial and people might get pissed off at me for saying this. I think that Eric slid into the place in Tim Bip in a slightly better fashion than Swan used to. And that's not a criticism of Swan. I think that Perry and Swan's mannerisms are too close together. And I think Eric has the same interest, the same mindset. And they were even talking about it on this week's episode of the fact that they're slightly on the opposite ends of the spectrum of the same generation, Mm -hmm. but they have the same interests, but their personalities are different enough that it plays off of each other far better than, a Perry and a Perry light. And I'm not saying that Swan is a Perry light. That's not what I'm getting at, but his personality does not have the edge that Eric's does with all three of them. It's, it's a great episode. It's a great listen. It's a great environment, but I think, and we'll talk about it another time, but I have, I have a ton of thoughts about this. Um, I think it's exactly what it needed. I think this is exactly what was needed. And if all three of them continue, I think they'll see just wild, wild success. Um, if, if Eric and Perry continue, I think they'll see wild, wild success as well. I think that that is the appropriate mix of folks that are there. Um, but you're right. Like we could have episodes that are just us bantering every so often and that would be perfectly fine. But I don't know that how that would go because 
you're right. Your interview style and mine is different. And the thing is, like, when you started going, I would probably shut up because you're getting ready to have, like, if we got doc, if we have Dr. Pat Heist on an episode and you start talking mm-hmm. to him, I'm going to do this because it's about to be two really smart guys that are going to have a conversation at a scientific level that I, I can probably understand 30% of it, but I don't have a ton to add to it and I'm not going to get in the way of it. I'm not going to get in the way of it. You know, and, and, and I wouldn't want to. So, um, but yeah, no, I appreciate I, the ask though. Yeah. I mean, and I, I appreciate what you said and, uh, know that the ask I had intended to make the ask and it was sincere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, um, for sure. And last point, then we should probably let each other go. Um, we've definitely been the record. It's like a reverse marathon record at this point. Uh-huh. Um, that, um, you know, if if uh, Eric Perry or Swan have have made it to this and are this point and are still still listening, um, I I 100% agree with you in terms of the dynamic. Like, I enjoyed Perry and Swan alone. Yep. I've listened to the entire back catalog of their of their podcast, which I can't say for every podcast that I start listening to. Um, and it's not a short backlog. It's not no, a short they're catalog. they're approaching. 300 or something so yeah or yeah so i get that but eric yeah he has an edginess he curses he'll say fuck mm-hmm. he'll you know and it's not the Perry curse word specifically but it's the attitude that comes with a person that's just willing to say what they need to say at that moment mm-hmm. and, and 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 having the counterpart the juxtaposition of a Perry person who's going to be very intentional about what they say mm-hmm it plays well. I think to me to circle back to our conversation about comedians, it's almost the, if you broke Carlin into a dichotomy mm-hmm. of the really cerebral part of him that, like you said, is careful with his words, very intentional. And the other side that is just loving the words so much and the experience that it's just flowing out and, you know, it's just boom, 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 things are happening. You put them together, you get this great comedian and you get this great, uh, duality in them. And yeah, I think you're right that having Swan back now does add something. Mm-hmm. Whereas before maybe it, it certainly would not have subtracted by any means, but didn't add in the same way. Yep. And, and I hope that they take that as we mean it and yes. that we're very happy to see it all together and that we exactly are enjoying yeah. it. This, this is, this is, it, it's, it's not an indication that we're saying that it was ever bad or it was bad before. No. It's the evolution has been exactly what I think it needs to be. Mm-hmm. And I think that it'll continue down the path. If it continues down the path that it is, it'll continue to grow at that point to the point to where you know, we start to maybe get to riding on coattails of some folks that are, that are, you know, becoming significantly large, right? Because they're, hey, they're, they're different to, than what a lot of exists that's out there. Hey, I've thought like of the people we know, like just the people in that chat, man, mm-hmm. like what if, what if we just decided to create our own podcast group? It wouldn't be hard. <laughs> it's there. Yeah. It largely it's there. exists there. We, we've but, all got our, we've all got our own things like, there's really no one in the group who I think overlaps with anyone else Mm-mm. in any, cons- in any really considered way other than just 
you know, us having the same guests occasionally, but that's, that's really it, you know, and you could have a really interesting network of podcasts. And of course, you know, it's really hard to break through, but it's much, but there's a reason that unions were created that, Mm -hmm. you know, that you do advocacy groups like discus instead of every distillery for itself. Cause you listen to a group more effectively than you listen to an individual. Right. Um, and that could be a way for us all to kind of crack through a little bit more, but that's a conversation for another day as well. Yeah. We'll save that for um, 10 bit 23. Like yeah. <laughs> we have a proposal guys. I mean, we're, we're closer to 10 bit 23 than we were when we started this. Well, so yeah, um, <laughs> I mean, way closer. I mean, and they're starting to talk about it. So, Hey, it's even better. It is. It is. Um, maybe after the live is over, but before we sign off, I do want to just tell you the name of that distillery because I'm curious to see what you think about yeah. it when you look at it. I, I got a couple of things to add as well, so we'll, we'll I'll, I'll dump you out. I'll hit the outro. We'll close it off, and then I'll come back in. All right, cool. sounds good. Absolutely, thank you for joining me. We're at three hours and forty three minutes, and if I get real long winded, I can keep you until three forty four. Um, thoroughly enjoyed this. I expected it to take this long didn't even get to all of my questions and I still have more on my notepad. So, you know, this will be a thing that'll happen again sometime in the future, but appreciate you for, for, for joining me. Appreciate you for the friendship, for the opportunity to learn more. I've enjoyed, you know, if you don't Patreon for uh whiskey ring podcast, you should, because you might have an opportunity to be a part of a tasting. You might have an opportunity to get some bottle samples, you might have an opportunity to experience things. It's just completely worth it. Um, and the content is, is pretty nice too. So appreciate you, David. Thanks for showing up. Um, I'll boot you up and we'll, we'll chat here again in a minute. Sounds great. Thanks so much for having me, John. Yeah. Thanks for tuning in for this offering of the embellished podcast. If you enjoyed this, please leave me a review on whatever platform that you have to be consuming this on. Leave a comment if possible. Hit me up on social media at, at Twitter or Instagram using embellished pod and give me a follow so you can keep up with what's going on here. I can be found at embellishpod.com with all of my links, account, contact details, and more. I'll be back again next week. Actually, I'll be back again later on this week with another new offering for you. So until then, cheers, and thanks for hanging out.